0: After all these implements and texts Designed by intellects of X to find Evidently there's so much that hides And though the saints of us divine In ancient feeding lines Their sentiment is just as hard To pluck from the vine
1: Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill Episode number 100 Where we go back Back to the past past, And read a comic book from the S year of publishing You can find us every Sunday on ChrisandReggie.podbean.com Or pick us up via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify And when the moon is in the seventh house And Jupiter aligns with Mars I believe we call that the age of Aquarius, right? Hmm. Yes, indeed But this is instead the dawning of the Age of Apocalypse. Uh. That's right. We're finally doing a big X-Men event. This is discussing the the post-1991 X-Men family of titles Legion Quest and X-Men Alpha with special attention paid to X-Men Alpha number one at a February 1995 cover date. Uh, story is titled "Beginnings," written by Scott Lobdell and Mark Wade. Pencils by Roger Cruz and Steve Epting. Inks by Tim Townsend and Dan Panosian. Colors by Brian Buccellato and Electric Crayon. Letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Edited by Bob Harris. Edited in chief by Tom DeFalco, Cover up by Joe. Cover by Joe Maggiara and Tim Townsend. And the cover price is three ninety-five.
2: Mm -hmm. But before we uh, get into anything, we got to start setting the table a bit here. So we're going to meet the X-Men family of titles up to this point, of course. Uh, We're going to start with the flagship, Uncanny X-Men. Launched simply as X-Men, the first issue was cover dated September 1963. And this featured the original five, and that's a phrase we'll be saying a whole heck of a lot today. And that was, of course, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Iceman, Beast, and the Angel. Who, led by Professor Charles Xavier, sought to find a way for humans and mutants to peacefully coexist. While fighting off the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and other guys. Oh, of course, yeah. uh, Of course. Now, the team was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. The title wasn't exactly a sales winner at first, and uh, following issue number 66, which was March 1970 cover date, the book would become a reprint-only title.
1: Yeah, it was bi-monthly for a while, then I think it mm-hmm. went quarterly. Even. Quarterly, yeah. and it was all reprints. It was pretty much going uh, to die, but it all changed with the introduction of the all-new, all-different X-Men and giant-size X-Men number one, with a May 1975 cover date, which in- included Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Storm, Banshee, Sunfire, and Thunderbird The X-Men title would resume telling new stories featuring this new team Plus some of the original members with issue number 94 That an August 1975 cover date Chris Claremont would take over writing duties from Len Wein And would go on to have a 16-year run on the title Joined by artists Dave Cockrum, John Byrne, and Paul Smith Claremont would tell some of the most seminal and fondly remembered X-Men stories, including the Dark Phoenix saga and Days of Future Past, the latter of which saw the title of the book officially become Uncanny X-Men. For more on those Byrne days, you can check out Weird Comics History episode 6. That would be a history of John Byrne. I would I would have mm-hmm. think that episode yes. <laughs> uh, available in the archives.
2: Now, into the mid-1980s, the now Uncanny X-Men became Marvel and the comic industry's standard bearer for sales. And as such, the line expanded. Uh, More on that in just a little bit. Uncanny X-Men continued to be the flagship title and followed the exploits of the main team, eventually taking them off the grid and into the Australian outback. We'll touch on that a little bit later, too. (laughs) Uh, Following the events of the Muir Island saga, Uncanny X-Men became the home of X-Men's Gold Strike Force, which was led by Storm. Chris Claremont would be replaced by Jim Lee and Will Spatazio, with a scripting by, of all people, John Byrne with issue number 281, October 1991
1: cover date. All right, and that's X-Men Volume 2. This is the Adjective Lifts volume, would launch that same month, October 1991, and was written by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee with art by Lee. The first issue would sell 8.1 million copies and net $7 million in profit It is the best-selling comic of all time as proclaimed by the Guinness World Records at the 2010 San Diego Comic Con And it's a record that has not been uh, shattered yet Uh, Claremont would hang on for the first three issues, then be replaced as a scripter by John Byrne Byrne didn't last long on either title, leading to Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nicieza being drafted into the writers' chairs But the deck chair rearrangement doesn't stop there, folks.
2: (laughs) And we will get there. Uh, X-Men Volume 2 was home of the X-Men's Blue Strike Force, which was led by Cyclops. The Blue and Gold teams featured the reintegration of the original five back into the main team after a lengthy stint with (laughs) Uh, X-Factor. X-Factor number one, February 1986, reunited the original five X-Men as they banded together under the guise of mutant hunters who were actually tracking down mutants in order to train them to better control their powers. The team saw the return of Jean Grey, who was believed to be dead following the events of the Dark Phoenix saga. It was revealed that Jean was never the Dark Phoenix, or Phoenix in general, because uh, she was in hibernation in a bit of cocoon under Jamaica Bay. Uh, Phoenix, Dark Phoenix, the whole spaz, uh might be a topic worth investigating for yeah. a future Cosmic Dreadmill or Weird Comics history. We will touch on it a little bit more later on, but not. Uh, it'll <laughs> we, be the, uh, and
1: the we've inch t- deep. We touched on it in the past. God, what story was that we did? We, we had, we had oh, to talk yeah. about it a lot for some other X-Men title, but we've never actually... Talked about that specific saga. Talked about any issues in (laughs) there. So yeah, we should. We should. We've done the inch deep,
2: mile wide. Exactly.
1: Uh,
2: Now, uh, X Factor would work under a pal of Warren Worthington's named Cameron Hodge. Following the events of the Mirror Island saga, the original five would return to the X-Men teams, and X-Factor would be radically altered.
1: And Warren Worthington is obviously the angel, we'll, we'll get mm. more information about these <laughs> specific guys later on. Uh, in X-Factor number 71, that was an October 1991 cover date, Peter David and Larry Stroman would take over the title, and a new team would be introduced, including Havoc, Polaris, Multiple Man, Quicksilver, and Wolf's Bane. You can check out Cosmic Treadmill episode 61 in the archives for a long-form discussion of that very issue. And during David's tenure, Peter David, that is, X-Factor, would work under the United States government and feature some heavier-than-normal subject matter, including an issue where the entire team sought counseling from Doc Sampson and a storyline which was to explore deducing the mutant gene in utero. But David didn't stick around long, long enough to do that, so it didn't happen. Now, in X-Force, this uh, in Marvel Graphic Novel Number 4, November 1982 cover date, the world was introduced to the New Mutants by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud. The New Mutants were just that, brand-new mutants, the next generation of Charles Xavier students, which included Danny Moonstar, a.k.a. Psych, jean coy A.K.A. A. Karma did, did I butcher that horribly? How bad did I, I, I think do? Sh- I think it's Xi'an Xi'an yeah. Karma uh, That's a Vietnamese uh, I uh, think so Yeah. Ron, Rain Sinclair, that's Wolfsbane Roberto Costa, Sunspot And Samuel Guthrie Is Cannonball
2: Now the New Mutants would receive their own Ongoing title with a March 1983 cover date Along the way the team would pick up Characters like Doug, Cypher, Ramsey, And Warlock Would uh, both die before the volume was out Doug's mutant power was his keen Understanding of language, which uh, Is about as useful on a battlefield As having a bullet (laughs) Uh, Uh Warlock would perish during the Extinction Agenda crossover event There was also characters like Birdbrain and Gossamer, but uh, I think mentioning them is enough
1: Yeah, Um, (laughs) Glossing over them
2: (laughs) Now the New Mutants would find a new leader In Cable And just as their volume was wrapping up Folks like Shatterstar and Domino popped up Uh, Boom Boom and Richter would pop up too
1: Ooh these these memorable Forever characters that you keep bringing (laughs) up It's incredible Uh, After a 100 issue volume Number 100 was cover dated April 1991 These mutants were no longer new, and under the leadership of Cable, transitioned to an actual X-Team of their own. This is X-Force number one, and now finally getting to that. uh, August 1991, Cover Day launched the concept of a proactive mutant hero group. Rather than waiting for trouble to knock on their door, Cable and the gang would neutralize threats before they did any damage. An early outing for the team would result in the World Trade Tower being destroyed by Juggernaut back in 1991. What hmm. might have been We'll talk more X-Force when we get to the crossovers But for now, we'll say Following the 1988 event Fall of Mutants In which nearly all the X-Men appear to have died Nightcrawler and Shadowcat wake up on Muir Island In the care of Dr. Moira MacTaggart. The X, X-Men Nightcrawler and Shadowcat Are devastated by the loss of their teammates Captain Britain, brother to the mutant Psylocke, is also broken up Without warning, Phoenix came from an alter universe called Mojo World Hunted by metallic, wolvish robots called Warwolves. Shadowcat Nightcrawler Megan and Captain Britain helped Phoenix out with that.
2: Yeah, they decided to form a new team in memory of the X-Men, calling the team Excalibur after the magical sword of King Arthur. They set up their headquarters in Captain Britain's Lighthouse, which is a convergence of alternate realities. X-Factor No. 1 had an October 1988 cover date and we talked a whole lot about it back in Cosmic Treadmill episode 96. Yeah. Available in the archives. Another team we got, Generation X Following the events of the Phalanx Covenant Which we will touch upon a bit later uh, The next, next generation of mutant heroes came together Uh, We gave a bunch about the first issue of Generation X During Cosmic Treadmill, episode 30 available in the archives And uh, we're going to be talking about that Phalanx saga in just a little
1: bit Oh yeah, and quite a bit about it (laughs) uh, Another fella you might know here Wolverine first broke out on his own in a four-issue limited series titled Wolverine, that it ran from September to December 1982 cover dates, written by Chris Claremont with art by Frank Miller. The first ongoing series launched in November 1988, and the original creative team was Chris Claremont and John Buscema, and was decidedly less superhero fare than perhaps many had expected from it. More a blend of James Bond and Indiana Jones, Claremont's solo Wolverine was more of a high-adventure take on the character. No mask, no costume, occasionally an eye patch, and a whole lot of Madripoor ninjas. The title would eventually move a bit closer to the X-Men family of titles and would even take part in crossovers, just like the several we'll be talking about today.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, another solo series is Cable. Cable, like Wolverine before him, had a miniseries before an ongoing. Cable, Blood and Metal, was a two-issue series that ran from October no- through November 1992, written by Fabian Nicieza with art by John Romita Jr. Cable's ongoing would begin... Uh, just a few months later, uh, launching with a May 1993 cover date, however, had no steady creative team for the first uh, first year plus. Uh, another book we got to talk about, X-Men Unlimited. In 1993, Marvel began launching quarterly series as a way to counter the dreaded fifth week in comics publication. Uh, for more on that, you can check out Weird Comics History, episode 24, where we go... Real in-depth on just what a fifth week is And the uh, ways around it uh, Now, <laughs> these fifth week uh, These quarterly books were the Unlimited books Spider-Man Unlimited and X-Men Unlimited Were the first to launch And they sucked um, <laughs> Well, eventually they sucked uh, They started out as a way to tell stories Quote-unquote between issues Now, the Unlimited books quickly became A repository for inventory and try-out stories Which would have been all well and good If not for the inflated price point X-Men Unlimited had a $3.95 cover price at a time when the rest of the X-Men line were priced between a buck and a quarter and a buck 75.
1: Ooh, that is rough. I mean, that is just that is what Marvel will charge you for a regular comic today, so that's that yeah. that uh that out there I think, but yeah, when you compare it to the other uh 22 or however many pages they ran comics back yeah. in those days. Everything has changed as you can tell folks. So that so that was just a list, right, of X-Men comics
2: so the time
1: that's yes. it. That's always you know <laughs> if you feel like if you feel like you' already got a semester's worth of information, then you better buckle in. there's a lot more to yes. come. Uh, now, how do we get here? Well, we can talk about the exodus. This uh, has to do with Chris Claremont specifically, although it's going to deal with a bunch of people <laughs> working on X men. Uh, as mentioned earlier, Chris Claremont enjoyed a sixteen year run with the X men, though maybe he didn't enjoy the last two as much, although. We're pretty sure his bank account did enjoy them, especially with that uh, record-breaking X-Men 7 million profit (laughs) issue. Uh, Claremont found himself butting heads with editor Bob Harris, who was keen on having current superstar artist and cash cow Jim Lee take over plotting detail on the mutant books. Chris's final issue for the stint would be X-Men Volume 2 Number 3, December 1991 cover date, which ended his run with a tiny caption featuring his initials.
2: Yeah, not not a lot of pomp and circumstance.
1: Wow, yeah. Move okay, along. So, Move along, Chris is what they you know.
2: <laughs> so Claremont's out the door. It's time for Jim Lee and Company to show us just what they can do.
1: Yeah. Right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Well stop us if you heard this one. Uh, Lee, along with several contemporaries, left Marvel in nineteen ninety-two to start their own publishing imprint. This would afford them creative control and rights For their own properties, and most importantly All the financial benefits that comes With said ownership. Worth noting Lee initially felt a bit Of loyalty toward Marvel. However, it is Rumored that due to their refusal To cover airfare for Lee's wife To go to a Sotheby's Sotheby's, Is that how we say it?
1: Either way is good, I think Sotheby's
2: Sotheby's Art auction, and uh, this auction was for his Own work, uh, and they wouldn't Pay for his wife's plane ride Uh, He felt that they might not value him as as much as they perhaps should. Mm. Uh, You gotta consider dude did just bring in almost eight figures of profit
1: with a single book. That was a publicity gaffe, I'm sure. Any publicist publicist would tell you, give the guy the plane ticket, it's not a big deal, you know. Charter a jet for them. Who yes. cares? You know.
2: <laughs> now, uh, the way Image Comics worked was that each creator had his own imprint, uh, which would use Image for distribution, publicity, and manufacturing. However, otherwise, it would be on their—they would be on their own for creative and production needs. Lee would launch Wildstorm Public uh, Wildstorm Productions, which was originally Aegis Entertainment, and uh, the rest, they say, is uh, weird comics history. For uh, more of Jim Lee, you could check out Cosmic Treadmill episode number twenty-eight.
1: In the archives. That's got to be Wildcats, right? That's Wildcats now. number one. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's, there's, there's definitely a much longer. St- we we've talked about Image Comics so often, also, but we've never actually done an episode <laughs> on it. There definitely is a yes. weird comics history episode in the making and in the oh, in for our sure. brains for that. But it just we, we just come across it every time we, we blow we by this year, you know, this yeah. ni- this uh, 1990s <laughs> early 90s. So, uh, so now what? Uh, during the Exodus, Marvel didn't just lose Jim Lee. Not just him, the entire X-Men line of books took a pretty sizable hit. Lee, who was guiding the flagship titles, was gone. will say Pristacio, who was handling art and some plotting on Un- Uncanny X-Men, also gone. Rob Liefeld, who was plotting and penciling X-Force, he was also gone. And Mark Silvestri, who was penciling Wolverine and had penciled Uncanny X-Men for a couple of years, was also out the door. Uh, I like to think Bob Harris's pants got much heavier that day <laughs> uh, What's more, ex-book editor Bob Harris Had ticked off the old guard Including Claremont, Byrne, and Simonson And they were not going to come back to fill the vacancies
2: Nope So what do we do now? Uh, as mentioned, following the departure Slash ouster of Claremont Marvel reached out to John Byrne to script Jim Lee and Wilson Potasio's Plots and Arts on X-Men And to, as we mentioned didn't last long uh, He cited he was receiving art Too late to adequately script And he left after only five issues Of that time, Byrne would say Apart from the logistical nightmare Working with Jim and Wills turned out to be The characters themselves had moved so far away From anyone I knew or wanted to know I found absolutely no connection to them So we need a new guy Let's meet Scott Lobdell Or Lobdell I I always say his name a few different ways Uh, He was already working on Alpha Flight And we'll talk more about that in a moment And I was in the office one Friday evening in December When he was approached by X-Men editor Bob Harris About scripting 22 additional pages Over that weekend He said sure Later that evening, it was the Marvel Christmas Party where Lobdell found out that everyone else had been offered the gig and turned it down. Hmm. Uh, He would become the fill-in scripter for Uncanny X-Men for a few months until it became his regular gig. And so begins his time with one of Marvel's flagship books.
1: Yes, uh, and some of that would happen during a lot of crossovers in the in, yes. in and out of the X-Men books. Uh, I guess beginning with the Executioner's Song. This was a 12-part event which ran through the Big Four X-Men family titles, from cover dates November 1992 to January 1993. Specifically, it was Uncanny X-Men 294 to 296, X-Factor 80, 84 to 86. X-Men Volume 2 number 14 through 16 and X-Force number 16 through 18. This would feature X-Force Batty and Cable Lookalike Strife, attempting to murder Professor X, framing Cable for the misdeed along the way, and lashing out at his parents, Scott Summers and Gene Gray. This would end with his as well as Cable's apparent deaths. Marvel would change course in the month that followed, making it so Cable was actually Cyclops' son, and not the evil mutant terrorist Strife.
2: We jump ahead a little bit, and we got another crossover. This is Fatal Attractions. This ran from July through November 1993, appearing in X-Factor number 92 July 1993, X-Force 25 in August, Uncanny X-Men 304 in September, X-Men volume 2 number 25 in October, and Wolverine 75 and Excalibur 71, both in November. Now, this is a story that saw Colossus jump from the X-Men to Magneto's Acolytes, during his sister's funeral, and uh, famously ended with Wolverine having his adamantium skeleton forcibly removed from his body, just before Professor X gives Magneto what amounts to a uh, telepathic lobotomy.
1: That Logan cannot catch a break. Let me tell you, they, just can't. They want just his can't. skull now. They want his brain out. Just leave, them, <laughs> leave the poor guy alone. Uh, another the crossover Blood Ties. This is a crossover with the Avengers to celebrate the 30th anniversary of both books. Ran through Avengers number 368 to 369, Avengers West Coast number 101, X-Men volume 2 number 26, and X- Uncanny X-Men number 307. And uh, Chris has a comment here, meh, is being polite about this crossover. It and was dull, yeah. That's all we'll say, but here's one we've been kind of skirting around a lot here, the Phalanx mm-hmm. Covenant. Uh, the crossover that leads into the formation of Generation X. Ran through the entire family of X Men books throughout the month of September and October 1994. This is Oct- Uncanny X Men number 316 to 317, X Men Volume 2, 36 to 37. Featured the core storyline called Generation. Next, and the X in next is the capitalized letter, in case you're wondering what, <laughs> what side of the bread the butter was on here. <laughs> uh, written by Scott Lebdell and Fabian Nicieza with art by Joe Maggera and Andy Kubert. X Men baddies Stephen Lang and Cameron Hodge allow themselves to become assimilated by techno alien types, the Phalanx. They are not alike warlock from the new mutants and can take the form of other life forms.
2: The story starts off like a horror movie, with a banshee arriving at the X-Mansion, which houses an X-Men team that acts kind of strange. He runs a computer scan, which shows the only mutants present are Jubilee, a comatose White Queen, a captive, a captive Sabretooth, and himself. So all those other X-Men he met, Fakes. they're phalanx. <laughs> Now, White Queen was uh, driven into a coma following her team of Hellions being murdered by Trevor Fitzroy back in Uncanny X-Men 281. We will mention that again later. Uh, Sabretooth had been taken in by Xavier with hopes of uh, that he might be able to curb his homicidal tendencies. That doesn't work. No.
1: It never works. It never works. <laughs> Sorry, Sabretooth is a maniac. That's how it is. Uh, it would turn out that the other X-Men present are, in fact, Phalanx dupes who are trying to utilize Cerebro to track down new mutants. Not the new mutants, but any any new mutants. A Banshee destroys Xavier's computer system in an attempt to keep the information out of the phalanges of the phalanx. <laughs> the four makeshift X-Men are able to escape the mansion and have a single new-er young mutant afterwards. <laughs> uh, the phalanx are able to capture four newbies. This was Husk, Paige Guthrie, the sister of Cannonball, and about a zillion other Guthries. Monet saint Croix. Monet St. Croix Why can't I say this? Croix, thank you, I don't know why I could not do that Monet St. Croix, skin and blink Poor Blink would not survive This initial phalanx storyline She dies, sacrificing herself A month after she introduced We'll meet her far more popular Age of Apocalypse incarnation later on today And this bit ends with The Gen X kids minus Blink Safely escaping the phalanx But that's not all Nope
2: X-Factor 106, X-Force 38, and Excalibur 82 feature the next phase. Life Signs is the story, written by Scott Lobdell, Fabian Niciesa, and Todd DiZago, with art by Jan Dussema, Tony Daniel, Ken Lashley, and Steve Epting. In this, Professor X assembles the second stringers and alerts them to the threat of the phalanx. They believe uh, this all started when Warlock's cremated remains were stolen by hate group Friends of Humanity. Warlock died during the X-Team's last big run-in with Cameron Hodge, which we mentioned was the Extinction Agenda crossover. Warlock's ashes were laid at the grave of his self-friend, Doug Ramsey. And as mentioned, Doug Ramsey was that new new mutant named Cipher, who you might recall had the extremely helpful in-battle power of understanding any language. Oh, yes. And as mentioned,
1: he died. Yeah, we couldn't understand the the international language <laughs> of "you're going to get killed." Yeah, uh, I gotta say too, when I was a kid, I I loved Warlock, I and mean, I think I was I think that was supposed to speak to kids of my age, just being kind of wacky, wild. He had a Cop,
2: cool you. design in that. Said, and uh, said uh, funny stuff. You know, yeah, yeah like Bill Singet Sinkevich do uh, right. like just the wacky poses with him it was great.
1: Oh, I mean, I'm sure you know the number, but the New Mutants cover with Sinkevich doing. Him, he's like, he takes up the whole cover. It's just one of yep, my favorite. Yep.
2: It's in the early 20s, yeah.
1: <laughs> favorite uh, covers. But uh, anyway, so we said all of that, so that we may say this, that the teams learn the existence of Douglock, which is believed to be the reanimated Doug Ramsey, with the genetic who's what sits of Warlock, though it ultimately is revealed that Doug Locke is simply Warlock with Doug's memories. Anyway, the second triggers destroy Phalanx Incubators, and it, it appears as though Doug Locke sacrifices himself. But he doesn't, he gets better and joins Excalibur Wolverine number 85 And Cable number 16 Featured the wrap up of Final Sanction Uh, the a t- titled Final Sanction, written by Larry Hama With art by Adam Kubert and Steve Scrooge St- Cyclops and Jean Grey returned for their honeymoon In an obligatory miniseries Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix Was the title of that, where they, were, where they Head to the future and raise Cable from boyhood Into adolescence, yes Really, that really did happen. Yeah. Anyway, they return home and get right right on their honeymoon too. I mean, come on, can you? Can, it's gonna happen in the future anyway. Uh, anyway, so yeah. they return home <laughs> and get right into the phalanx action. A team with Cable and Wolverine uh, to attack on two fronts. Jean and Cable do their astral plane thing, and Cyclops and Wolverine infiltrate. Wolverine finds Bishop in one of the containment chambers and uses his mutant energy source powers to bring down the house. Lang and Hodge appear to perish, but. Yeah, that never really sticks, does it? Yeah.
2: <laughs> now, of, a, of potential interest, The Phalanx Covenants was uh, sort of kind of adapted into a two-part episode of the mid-'90s X-Men animated series, though it features Beast rather than Banshee in the point-of-view role, and also none of that pesky Generation X stuff that just mucked it all up. Sure. Um, then, the crossover we're about to speak of. Dare we call it Crisis on Infinite X-Earths? Oh, huh? No, that's silly, even though that's uh, what Wizard Magazine called it in their 41st issue, January 1995 cover. They said, is it just a bunch of fluff and hyperbole coming out of Marvel's mutant office, or are we about to witness the cataclysmic unraveling of Crisis on Infinite X-Earths? Well, hold on to your hats, folks, because it's actually both. Those are a lot of words that I don't think mean anything
1: No, um, not really, you know uh, know. So so is this like Crisis?
2: Well, no, this is uh, actually just Wizard talking out of their asses Oh, fair enough
1: (laughs) Also, in the January 1995 issue, they asked Fabian Nicieza for the skinny Here's what he had to say Uh, I'd rather not compare what we're doing to DC's Crisis on Infinite Earths or Zero Hour, quite honestly Not to sound facetious in any way, but what they're doing is a radical reorganization of their continuity. We're not doing that. We are doing a story. Theirs is a revisionist version of their previous history in order to make their future more streamlined. Ours has nothing to do with that whatsoever. Our story affects all all the X-Men titles, that's all it is. Even though, according to Fabian Nicieza, this has nothing to do with Crisis or Zero Hour, Don't let that stop you from checking out our coverage of both these events in the archives. Uh, So, they're trying to say the X-Men weren't convoluted and they needed streamlining. Is that what they're trying to pass on us here? That's exactly what they're saying. I mean, after everything we just said, too, Chris. Come (laughs)
0: on.
2: (laughs) At the very thought, Scott Scott Lobdell had this to say. Unreadable? The X-Men? I think that's very, very humorous. I think that the books are more readable now than they ever were. By the same token, there were a long period of time where they were less so. He continues, It's very amusing, though, because uh, it's a very amusing thought because one would argue one who would argue that is the people who find it unreadable are the ones that aren't reading it. And uh, those are a lot of words that are really up for debate. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: I don't know. we uh, we kind of dragged our feet a little too long here, so let's get into the age of apocalypse.
1: But first, Legion Quest. What? Yeah, who the hell is Legion and why does he matter? Well, his real name is David Holler. First appearance was New Mutants, number 25, March 1985, cover date, created by Chris Claremont and Bill Kevich. The son of Charles Xavier and Gabriel Holler. We'll meet them both in a bit. A mutant who suffers schizophrenia. And we're just going to minimize this meaning to have uh, multiple personalities as in... Comic parlance, yes, uh, thing the thing of it is each of these personalities has a different mutant power during the Muir Island saga he was possessed legion was possessed by the shadow king during which time he killed the mutant precog destiny, the who now very soon. <laughs>
2: Now, following this, he was left in a coma
1: until
2: X-Factor number 109, December 1994 cover. This is Legion Quest Prologue, The Waking, by Todd DeZago, John Francis Moore, and Jan Dursema. Legion's in a coma, and uh, is very nearly assassinated by Mystique, who's... Sort of in the midst of a kinda good guy phase, but she's also being forced to work with X Factor. It, it's a it's a long story. Sure. Uh, while in his coma, David speaks with Destiny. We just mentioned her. She's that she's a that precog who's also blind, but she's also a mutant named Irene Adler. First appearance: X Men number 141, January 1981, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. She was part of Mystique's Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. It's also alluded that they were romantically linked, and we will we'll touch on that a bit later. Uh, I'm not even sure if we touch on that today, but we will
1: eventually. <laughs> in the series, yeah.
2: Yes. Now, Destiny died in Uncanny X Men 255, December 1989, cover date, because Legion. Uh, he was under the control of the Shadow King. Uh, however, her consciousness actually survived. And lives inside Legion's mind.
1: Well, that's now the artist only has to draw one character. You know, that's good uh, (laughs) instead of two. So, still with us, folks? Good. (laughs) I'm glad to hear. Destiny has a message she needs David to pass on to Mystique. X Factor battles the Brotherhood's avalanche during which Legion is able to pull the old mind meld with Mystique and delivers Destiny's message. Issue ends with Legion making X Factor disappear, and him stating he's going to make everything better. That, that does not a good portent. No. Uh, Uncanny X-Men number 320, cover date January 1995. This was Legion Quest Part 1: The Sun Rises in the East by Scott Labdell, Mark Wade, and Roger Cruz. After learning that a black dome had been erected in the Negev Desert, the X-Men head in to check it out. X-Men Storm, Iceman, Bishop, and Psylocke enter the dome to fight Legion. However, they are unsuccessful in stopping him from creating a time portal, and they all get sucked into it. Jean Grey is left behind. Send a distress signal to the professor.
2: Meanwhile, Princess Lalandra of the Shi'ar is informed that the Emkron crystal signals the end of everything. Uh, now, Psylocke Gets left out of the Age of Apocalypse for some reason. So uh, we'll we'll give her a quick bio right now. Elizabeth Braddock first appeared in the U- UK in Captain Britain number eight, this is December 1976, and then in the United States during New Mutants Annual number two, October 1982, cover date. She was created by Chris Claremont and Herb Trimp. She's the sister of Captain Britain, Brian Braddock. Hell, she actually was briefly Captain Britain herself. She'd be captured by Mojo and Spiral, who removed her eyes and replaced them with bionics, then made her the star of a Mojo World television show. If you recall, Mojo World is obsessed with media of all types.
1: Yeah. Uh, That show was called Wild Ways, and the New Mutants found themselves involved, too. After this adventure, she'd wind up joining the X-Men. Later on, to save the X Men from a fatal end she saw in her pregnant precognitive vision, she sent them through the Siege Perilous, a magical doorway brooch thing named after the vacant seat at King Arthur's Round Table. Stepping through the siege would give the passer a brand new life. She herself woke up an amnesiac in China. They'll hate when that happens. Yeah, it sucks. Uh, the leader of the hand, Matsuo Tsuraiba. That's good. close one. enough <laughs> uh, Nabbed her to do a body swap With his brain dead girlfriend Kwenin, And this is how she wound up In her Asian body uh, <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> Oh comics You bl- bless your sweet Sweet tender hearts uh, In this lead up to the age of apocalypse uh, Betsy had started A flirtation with the very spoken for Cyclops before starting an actual Relationship with Angel Also Earl's body came back for a visit. Why not? Sure. You know, remember me <laughs> the white body. Anyway, uh, it eventually died of the legacy virus, though. So that was nice. Uh,
2: and, and the art was so like <laughs> you couldn't tell which one was which in some of them because really? uh, it was it was uh, one of the Cubert brothers did it, and like. I mean, like the facial structure was very similar. When one's <laughs> supposed to be Caucasian, one's supposed to be Asian, and the only way you knew is because the uh, the 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 old body had puffier hair. Like she had uh, the Psylocke had like the straight hair, and this uh-huh. one that came back had like poofy, had like almost a 1980s body hair. To it, yeah. Yes,
1: that <laughs> she is, conditioned regularly. I gotta tell you, this really this really does sound hilarious, hilarious to me. But uh,
2: it's been e- it's been easier to read than ever.
1: Yeah. The X Men line. Sure, yeah. Now, now it's it's all makes perfect sense. So anyway, uh, God, I can't even think about it. Anyway, uh, while we're bioing folks, uh, Professor X, who for reasons that are about to become clear, is also left that of the Age of Apocalypse. Uh, his real name is Charles Xavier. First appearance was in X Men number one, September 1963, by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Grew up with an abusive stepfather, jerk faced step brother. Uh, that brother was Kane Juggernaut Marco, by the way. Graduates with honors from Harvard at the age of 16 And from there goes on to study at Oxford Where he meets Moira Kinross Who we will meet later They have a brief engagement But then he travels to Cairo Then to Israel where he'd meet Eric Lenscher.
2: Now this is where our timelines kinda split off If yeah. you know where we're headed uh, In the Prime Universe He would tra- later travel to the Himalayas Where he would have a run-in with an alien Known as Lucifer this is the baddie responsible for crushing Charlie's legs. Uh, he'd go on to form the original X-Men at his school for gifted youngsters. Uh, they graduate in record time. Uh, I think a lot of people don't pay mind to the fact that they graduate like in issue 8.
1: Yeah, they're done. The first class is done already. It's <laughs> incredible. Yep. Uh,
2: now, Chuck fakes his own death early on. Uh, more on that in a bit. Uh, after the original team were captured by the mutant island Krakoa, Xavier put together the all-new, all-different team. Didn't he first put together that other team, the uh, team that died, that had Cyclops' other, other brother on it?
1: Not yet, not now. <laughs> not yet, not yet,
2: not yet. Um, now, he would meet and fall in love with the majestrics of the Shi'ar Empire, Lalandra, and they fall in love.
1: And then soon after, he has a brood egg implanted inside his body. This ends with his body having to be cloned, and that's why, for the mid-late 1980s, Professor X was able to walk. Following the trial of Magneto, Professor X leaves Earth to be with Lalandra. Magneto takes over his role as mentor to the new mutants. Uh, Charles comes back to Earth and has his legs crushed again I hate because when that you know they—that was for convenience' sake, I guess. Uh, <laughs> during Extinction Agenda, they—he uh, was nearly assassinated by Strife who was trying to pass his Cable, as we did mention before. And am during-
2: sorry, that was Executioner's Song. I put the wrong title. Oh, ex- yeah.
1: Executioner's Song, but that was the same storyline we talked about yes. before where they were mistaking yeah. Strife for Cable. Uh, yes. During Fatal Attractions gave Magneto a brainwash, and of course, since we're going to the Age of Apocalypse, most of what we said didn't actually happen for the purposes <laughs> of this story that we're getting to very soon, folks, I promise. It's all important groundwork we're getting here. <laughs> uh, X-Men number 40, January 1995, cover date. This was Legion Quest Part 2, The Killing Time, by Fabian Nicieza and Andy Kubert. Legion and the X-Men arrived 20 years in the past, and nobody can remember nothing. In the present, the X-Men and Cable find Gene in the desert. They're informed by Lalandra, who received warning from the Watchers about the end of days.
2: thought they weren't supposed to interfere.
1: Uh, except when they do, which is always So that's how mm-hmm. that works, yeah
2: <laughs> Now back in the past, Legion is taken to a hospital in Israel it just so happens to be the very hospital where both Charles Xavier and Eric Lenscher were working 20 years ago Legion's memory returns after being touched by Magneto and he starts projecting illusions These illusions are of Magneto's yet-to-occur evil deeds And also of the present-day X-Men we jump into Uncanny X Men 321, February 1995. This is Legion Quest Part 3, Alt Lang Sign, by Scott Lobdell, Mark Wade, and Ron Gawney. In current day, Gene and Cable try to send a psychic signal back to the time displaced X Men. Back in the past, Professor X and Magneto's younger selves get into a barbed role while trying to protect a war veteran. Legion then poses as his father, Charles Xavier. And seduces his mother, Gabriel Haller. Hmm. Uh, they don't show what happens to uh, completion, but uh, we we have our theories, folks. There is at the very, very least some hot and heavy making out.
1: But he could be he oh. could be his own papa.
2: But we yeah we expect that something else happened.
1: Yeah. We probably, in knowing yeah. knowing how comics like, couldn't they just do another another racial body swap? I mean. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Now, Xavier hears her mentally cry out, and he and Magneto rush back to the hospital to check on her, and what they find is Legion. Cable's also able to contact the time-displaced X-Men, but only long enough to pass a message on to Bishop. Over to X-Men 41, February 1995 cover date, Legion Quest Part 4, Dreams Die, by Fabian Nicieza, Andy Kubert, and Ron Garney. In here, Legion fights Magneto. The time-displaced X-Men try to reduce chronal and physical damage to the past. Psylocke's able to to contact Xavier, lets him know what's going on with Legion. In the present, the M-Cran crystal begins destroying everything. Back in the past, Apocalypse wakes up and figures, hey, now might be a good time to ascend.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Now the X-Men fight Legion to a standstill, (laughs) until Legion just KOs a lot of them. Uh, Then he sets his sights on Magneto. You see, the whole point of this Is if he kills Magneto in the past Mm -hmm. His father's dream of a world Where humans and mutants can peacefully coexist Is almost a certainty
1: Right, Magneto. Magneto's always the big bad Leading the mutants Mm -hmm. to be homo superior That's his thing
2: Now unfortunately, altruistic Xavier Throws himself in the way And winds up being killed instead Everyone, except Bishop Vanishes As the crystal wave smashes into the earth In the present Now we wrap up Legion Quest with an epilogue In cable number 20 February 1995 this is Legion Quest Epilogue an hour of last Things by Jeff Loeb and Ian Churchill this is basically The last moments of existence in the present Before the crystal wave hits
1: Alright and now Finally finally Chris That -hmm. brings us to X-Men Alpha number one with a February 1995 cover date Titled Beginnings by Scott Lobdell Mark Wade, Roger Cruz And Steve Epting But first (laughs) Some normal creator bios Of course we have to let you know about the people that made These books and we'll start with Scott Labdell, born on either August 24th 1960 or Someday during 1963 Assumably on dry land uh, Maybe on earth possibly Marlboro New York we're not sure Could be Uh, Did not grow up a comic book fan, only resorting to reading them while convalescing after lung surgery when he was 17 So that was either 1977 or 1980 Mm -hmm. He was more fascinated with the idea that people got to make comics for a living than the stories He decided this might be a career path for him He studied psychology in college until he came to the realization that he did not want to spend the rest of his life listening to everyone's problems He just completed two years of that Then Then he decided to pursue writing Utilizing conflict and resolution techniques from his brief psychology background Very brief Um,
2: Worked on the college newspaper as a writer and a cartoonist And he would also perform interviews One of those interviews was with New York newscaster Chuck Scarborough Which showed Scott that he could use the paper in order to chat with people that he found interesting And who might help him maybe get his foot in the door in the comics industry And so he looked up comics editor uh, Al Milgram did the interview and he felt he might have an in at Marvel. For for the next year and a half, he would regularly travel to Marvel HQ and drop off uh, story synopses. Uh, this was a 5-hour round trip from Marlborough, and he would begin networking with a few Marvel editors. He'd receive multiple rejections. However, one from Tom DeFalco had a handwritten PS that said the story isn't as bad as the last story
1: and i tell you i'm sure that letter went immediately to the fridge or the wall up to you know or it was under uh, under glass yep yeah i mean really that's the kind of thing that would just you know send a writer to the stratosphere any kind of little uh, recognition uh marvel comics presents was a biweekly anthology series that launched september 1988 and would run 175 issues until march 1995 each issue featured four eight page stories Scott Lobdell pitched a story to Tom DeFalco using obscure, using obscure characters because had he chosen a big-name character, it would have to be okayed by upwards of four editors. He pitched a story featuring Global Village, characters from Marvel's 1982 Contest of Champions miniseries. Some say the first comic book event, but it's no, mm-hmm. another thing. Uh, Contest of Champions uh, ran for three issues from June through August 1982, and that was Marvel's first limited series.
2: Now, Scott also wrote uh, Alpha Flight, as we mentioned earlier, including issue 106, March 1992 cover date, wherein North Star came out as homosexual. This was after he adopted a baby who had AIDS. Uh, the baby is referred to as Joanne Bobier, or Which is Northstar's own surname And uh, the baby dies that same issue All royalties from this book Went to the Elizabeth Glasser Pediatric AIDS Foundation Uh, He would become As mentioned here For lack of a better term The architect of the X-Men line Uh, He also wrote uh, This is uh, nothing to do with the age of apocalypse But he also (laughs) wrote what is often looked at As the worst X-Men family comic book At least of the 1990s This is X-Men Unlimited number 4 March 1994 cover date, and the issue would reveal that Mystique is Nightcrawler's mother amid a mess of continuity errors and tweaks. Uh, they, I, I think one of the things people point out is that there was a waterfall in Mississippi or something, and there are no waterfalls in Mississippi. <laughs> oh, it's, okay. it, it's really silly. Uh, now, Lobdell himself even mocked this issue on Usenet under the name Kid York. Uh, for better or worse, this would pay off a long lingering dangling plot line dating back to the early to mid Claremont run uh, Since we're not sure when we'll discuss this again, Claremont's original plan was for Mystique to be revealed as Nightcrawler's father Since she's also a shapeshifter Longtime associate Destiny, who we mentioned earlier, would be revealed as Nightcrawler's mother
1: Well, I'll be mm-hmm. uh, On to the, I guess, the co-writer, scripter, whatever you want to call him uh, Mark Wade, born Janu- uh, sorry, March 21st, 1962 in Hueytown, Alabama In 1966, Mark's dad brought home Batman number 180, cover date May uh, The story is Death Knocks Three Times This was the first issue out after the debut of Bill Dozier's Batman television show starring Adam West Mark was captivated by this comic and began collecting comics When the family moved to Birmingham, he would go with his father to a radio newsstand, which may have just been a newsstand with a sign that read radio on the outside of it. Uh, The newsstand had a wall of comics, which became Mark's four-color library, and he never stopped collecting comics, not when he got older, not due to girls, nothing, no reason. He always collected comics. Before becoming a teenager, Mark used to read every comic book twice consecutively, then copy its pertinent information and a description of the story onto a 3x5 index card And file it away His teenage life was tumultuous And he fought frequently with his parents Often spending long stretches of time Crashing at friends' houses
2: In 1979, Mark watched Superman the movie He found this a life-changing experience uh, Sat through the movie twice in a row And left with a strong belief in heroism He says, seeing Superman the movie changed my life In a fundamental and profound way And gave me a North Star that I've followed ever since Mark dreamt of working in comics But uh, didn't think that he wrote or drew enough to qualify He'd attend the Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond uh, Which is noted for its journalism program Stopped pursuing journalism when, quote, it dawned on me in about the first week and a half that I'd never, ever have what it takes to stand in front of a grieving widow and stick a microphone in her face. He would change his major a few times, eventually settling on English with a minor in physics. Though he didn't graduate uh, He's shy three credits And probably the rest of those credits have uh, long expired by now And this yeah. is uh, as of 2009
1: Oh, just give him a, give him a uh, you know An honorary, an honorary degree. degree What's the big <laughs> deal? Uh, after college, Mark found work for Amazing Heroes Magazine and Comics Buyer's Guide In 1984, DC editor Sal Amendola did a cross-country talent search Mark was living in Dallas at this time Spoke with Amendola, who was looking for story pitches Mark asked him which character hadn't been pitched yet. Sal replied, You know, of all the pitches I've gotten so far, no one's pitched a Superman story. Everyone wants to write Batman. Nobody's tried for Superman. And the editor, Julie Schwartz, is actively looking for eight-page stories. Since Mark already knew Julie through Amazing Heroes and he was about to be in New York for the first time, he was able to set up an in-person meeting with Julie Schwartz. Mark said, I offered him an eight-pager in which Superman goes to his Arctic Fortress only to find that it's been stripped bare. Someone has burgled the joint, but who and why? Schwartz picked up the story in Wade's first professional comics work, in Action Comics number 572, October 1985 cover date, titled Puzzle of the Purloined Fortress.
2: The following year, Wade pitched Thousands of stories Schwartz, Schwartz bought one and was uh, Heavily edited by he and his assistant El- uh, E. Nelson Bridwell um, And thus his uh, freelance Comic book writing career was put on hold We're not sure which story this was no. though. Um, in 1986 Mark moved to LA to work for Fantagraphics as an editor Mark's first task on his first day was to Fire! <laughs> his replacing Which is always a good way to start a new position wow. uh, And this fellow, of course, had no idea that it was coming. He probably just bought a new house a couple days earlier. Yeah, really. <laughs> now, by the spring of 1987, Mark was packaging and editing his own magazine. This was Comics Week. Mark says, and Mark refers to it as an industry news tabloid that was printed at roughly the size of a military parachute, but with more hot air. <laughs> Comics Week would run five issues. DC Comics publisher Jeanette Kahn noticed Comics Week and thought that Mark might be a good fit for the brand new imprint, Paras an imprint that you can learn all about By listening to episode 15 of Weird Comics History In our
1: archives That's right, the Piranha Paradox Press episode mm-hmm. uh, That fell through But he was hired as an associate editor At age 25 by Dick Giordano And moved from LA to New York For this, his dream job Mark's first two days consisted of erasing pencil lines on Green Arrow
2: Living the dream
1: (laughs) That is the dream For two (laughs) years, he primarily edited Secret Origins and made a lot of contacts, but he was fired by 1990 He also edited Batman Gotham by Gaslight, kicking off the Elseworlds imprint After this, he became a regular freelance writer for DC Comics The first work consisted of work for DC's short-lived Impact Comics line Where he wrote the comic and scripted dialogue for Legend of the Shield These are the MLJ Archie Comics heroes bought by DC at the time, and I think they let that license lapse and Archie has it back again. I yeah. In 1992, Wade was hired by editor Brian Augustin to write The Flash, and here, his star took off. He would write The Flash for eight years. He wrote a Metamorpho limited series in 1993 and created the Impulse character in The Flash 92, 1994, uh, July 1994 cover date. Impulse was launched into his own series In 19, April 1995 by Wade and artist Humberto Ramos And this is Bart Allen The future mm-hmm. future uh, Descendant the, of, Barry of Barry Allen yeah. Who comes back to kind of be the Kid Flash of the 90s uh, In November of that same year, Wade and Howard Porter collaborated on the Underworld Unleashed Limited series, which served as The core storyline of a company-wide Crossover event At the same time, Mark Wade was writing for Marvel and his first major project for them was, was one of the writers of this very Age of Apocalypse crossover
2: hmm Yeah <laughs> Now let's hop across the table and meet Roger Cruz Rogério da Cruz Corrada was born February 22nd, 1971 in Sao Paulo, Brazil He began his professional career with Ed- Editora Abril, a major Brazilian publisher and printing company Also one of the biggest media holdings in Latin America he mostly lettered Portuguese translations of American comics. He'd be introduced to the American comics world by Art and Comics Studio, and he found himself getting a lot of work from Marvel Comics. Now, his arrival on the scene was met with cries of, swipe! Ah. You see, Cruz taught himself to draw by copying other pencilers, including Jim Lee and, perhaps most obviously, Joe Majuara. Joe wasn't terribly pleased and included a newspaper headline reading, Cruise Swipes Again, in Uncanny X-Men number 325, October 1995 cover date. In fairness, though, Cruise was doing an awful lot of fill-in work for Joe Mad, who at the time was probably a little too preoccupied with chrono trigger or final fantasy 3 to get his pages in. Uh, he does, Joe Mad that is, turn in a heck of a color for X, uh, cover for X-Men Alpha though. It
1: is. It's quite we we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it very shortly, but uh, you know, mm-hmm. just going to make a quick comment, you know, of course you often see a lot of young artists are cribbing their styles from others, but sure. over time, they can develop and become you know, very They're strong personal yep. artists. So it don't, however you get there, you've got to get there eventually. That's and right. finally, Steve Epting, who received a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Graphic Design from the University of South Carolina. In 1989, Epting read about a contest being held by independent publisher First, Com- First Comics looking for some new talent. The winning story was to be published by the company. Only, the contest didn't actually exist. In an interview with Marvel Spotlights, Epting said the following, I graduated with a BFA in graphic design and had been doing that for a while when I read about a contest that First Comics was holding at the Atlanta Fantasy Fair. They were going to publish the best six-page story as a backup in one of their books. I decided to enter just to see if there was any chance of getting into comics. I didn't know anyone in the business and had no idea how to go about trying to break in, so I figured this was worth a shot. Well, I arrived at the convention and was surprised to find that nobody from First Comics knew anything about the contest. They had not authorized it and told the eight or nine people who entered that they would look at the entries, but they would not be publishing anything. Another guy and I were declared the winners, and First Art Director met with us to discuss possibly doing some work for them. That's how I got my start but I don't remember the other winner's name, and I've often wondered who he was and if he went on to work in comics. Who knows? Maybe he's reading this. And that man's name was Robert Live <laughs> uh, Epting would do fill-ins on first titles Dreadstar and Whisper, that by 1991, first was out of business. And after sending some samples around the industry, Epting found work in Marvel Comics. His first work was filling in, in a bi-weekly Avengers story, after which, with the issue number 341, November 1991 cover date, he would become the full-time Avengers, Avengers artist.
2: After leaving the Avengers, he would jump over to the X-Books and even take part in the massive event we're discussing right this very moment. Let's hop right into X-Men Alpha. We promised it, we're going to deliver. Now, the cover is a, it's wraparound, it's chromium, and it features some of the new look mutants. Wolverine, or weapon X, is a naturally front and center. He's flanked by Gambit, Blink, Bishop, Sunfire, who probably has the coolest new look here, mm. Marvel Girl, Quicksilver, and Nightcrawler. Magneto and Rogue float on a chunk of earth behind
1: them. And on the back cover we still see we see still more of the X-Men, including Sabretooth, Wild Child, Colossus, and Jubilee. Apocalypse and a fleet of green and gray sentinels linger in the background here.
2: We open in Seattle. A man is clawing his way through a mountain of burnt bodies.
1: Captions read, Welcome to Seattle. It should be raining. Certainly the man reaching upward thinks so. Though a sudden downpour might slicken his climb, surely, surely it would cut the stench.
2: He arrives at the top of the pile. This was the site of a culling. He thinks to himself that this is somewhat familiar, yet wrong. You see, where he comes from, mutants are rounded up, not humans. These are human bodies. Yeah. He wears a tattered cloak which hides his identity.
1: Yeah. The secret guide kneels down to next to one of the corpses and invokes a moment of silence in their behalf, which is almost immediately interrupted by a young girl racing in his direction. She crashes right into the man. She goes. <laughs>
0: They got mama, daddy, they got them all and we're gonna die. Mister,
1: don't, don't let me die. The man now finds himself stood before a green armored individual who is surrounded by large Nimrod esque characters who Unus refers to as the Infinites. Is is Unus Unus? What am I gonna Eunus. say? There's Eunus. so many there's so many ways I want to say it, but I know there's gotta be one. Uh yeah, so this man in charge is Eunice the Untouchable. His real name is Gunther Bain, although born Angelo Yunuscioni, hence the Eunice. Uh mm. First appearance, X-Men number 9, November 1964, cover date created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. He has the power to use his repulsor energy to create a solid force field. Join the villainous Factor 3 with an eye toward. What else taking over the world? And this was unsuccessful.
2: As you might imagine, with a name like Factor 3. He'd he'd later hook up with Magneto's Brotherhood. Uh, He'd eventually retire from the villain game and become a professional wrestler. At some point he'd sire future Alpha Flight member Radius. He'd come out of retirement and fight the Hulk, uh, and he would wind up suffocating himself in his own force field. Whoops. Uh Uh-oh. Now Eunice blasts this cloaked man.
1: Yeah, he says, Allow me to take care of him with a crushing of force field.
2: He continues to blast.
1: Tattered Northern Dress. An emigrant. Fool. Every flat-scan with a brain is dashing a northward. Away from the wrath of a sacred leader. Surely you've heard them curse the holy name of... of something... Something's wrong.
2: Indeed there is. You see, this tattered fella is
1: absorbing your power. He... He absorbs me power? We just said that. Impossible. Unless he too is a mutant.
2: Well, that ought to be obvious by now. Pretty much. Uh, by the way, the flat scan remark he made is an anti human slur that evil mutants like to bandy about. Uh, now, the only thing Eunice likes less than a flat scan is.
1: The stranger is a traitor to his race.
2: Now, we didn't realize that mutant was a race, but what are you going to do?
1: It is in this series, Chris, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Eunice says, kill him. And then from off panel.
2: Sabretooth says
1: Not
0: so fast It's it's the X-Men?
2: Kinda Sorta Let's meet him We're gonna start with Sabretooth Real name Victor Creed First appearance Iron Fist Number 14 August 1977 cover date Created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne He was a member of the CIA co- Covert Ops Unit Team X He's a, musen, a mercenary killer A member of the Marauders uh, He's had a pretty busy life <laughs> Um, he was also intended as being uh, as being uh, Wolf- revealed as Wolverine's father by Chris Claremont Claremont says, father and son That's why Sabretooth always considered Logan sloppy seconds to his original slash real deal And we're not sure that sloppy seconds means what Mr. Claremont thinks
1: it does. I, I sure hope it doesn't, yeah Why uh, <laughs> sl- so sloppy? Anyway, uh, Claremont continued the other critical element in my presentation of the relationship was that in their whole life Logan was never defeated, has never defeated Sabretooth in a knockdown, drag out, killer be killed, berserker fight. By the same token, on every one of his birthdays, Sabretooth has always managed to find him, no matter where Logan was or what he was doing, and come within an inch of killing him, for no other reason than to remind him that he could. This would be debunked in Wolverine number 42, July 1991 cover day, when it was confirmed that they were not father and son. Sabretooth was part of the Marauders during the Mutant Massacre, which wiped out a whole bunch of Morlocks. And as we approached the Age of Apocalypse, Sabretooth had just spent some time as a captive in X-Mansion, and wound up actually helping the good guys in their battle against the Phalanx.
2: Next person we're going to meet is Wild Child, real name Kyle Gibney. In first appearance: Alpha Flight, number one, August nineteen uh, eighty-three, created by John Byrne. Young Kyle was tossed out by his parents due to his odd appearance, uh, and found himself taken captive by the Secret Empire, which uh, I think that's that group that Nixon ran, right?
1: Right.
0: Yes.
2: <laughs> now the Empire uh, experimented on him. He was eventually found by some Canadian agents and handed over to Department H. And those, of course, are the people with the Alpha Flight. Wildchild would join Gamma Flight.
1: Uh, also there is Blink, real name Clarice Ferguson. First appearance in Uncanny X-Men number 317, October 1994, cover created by Scott Lobdell and Joe Magiera. Magiera? Magiera.
0: Madjuara.
1: Sure. Uh, <laughs> we met We met Blink very briefly during the Phalanx Covenant, where she sacrificed herself to save the rest of the team. Since that was only four months before the age of apocalypse We guess she was still on Scott Lobdell's mind At the time
2: We got Morph, real name Kevin Sidney First appearance uh, X-Men 35, August 1967 Created by Roy Thomas and Warner Roth Back in the long ago He was a bad guy called Changeling Who uh, then took over The form of Professor X So he, the professor, could fake his own death (laughs) And he was dead forevermore Sure Well, until he was brought back for the X-Men animated series under the name Morph.
1: Well, he died there too, didn't he?
2: For a little while, yeah. Yeah, Uh, Well, and he's back again for the Age of Apocalypse and looks... Absolutely nothing like either his changeling Nor animated series forms Though, in fairness,
1: he is a shapeshifter. That's his name, he morphs Uh, Rogue's real name Is Anna Marie LeBeau As of this recording Uh, First appearance is Avengers Annual Number 10 October 1981 Created by Chris Claremont and Michael Golden This is a runaway who left home After her mutant power of absorption via touch Kicked in just as she was making out With her boyfriend Cody her powers were uncontrollable, leading her to ha- to having to wear gloves and avoid any and all skin-to-skin contact with others. She'd be picked up by Mystique and Destiny and wound up joining their Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And she wound up permanently absorbing the powers of Carol Danvers, uh, at one-time uh, Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Uh, she eventually see the error of her ways and join the X-Men and is romantically linked to a few mutants we might know, including Gambit and the fella we're about to meet right now.
2: That is Magneto, real name Max Eisenhart. though at this time he was believed to be Eric Lensher. First appearance, X-Men number one, September 1963, created by Stan and Jack. This is the X-Men's original arch nemesis and the master of magnetism. He led the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and just an all-around bad dude for those first 66 issues. Stan Lee commented in 2008 that he never saw Magneto as a villain, which is a very Stan Lee thing to say. Yeah. He says, I did not think of Magneto as a bad guy He just wanted to strike back at the people Who were so bigoted and racist He was trying to defend the mutants And because society was not treating them fairly He was going to teach society a lesson He was a danger, of course But I never thought of him as a villain Far be it from us to argue with Stan But come on yeah. I guess these things just play a little bit better in recent He
1: times. of the convenient memory can, Will remember <laughs> things as he chooses uh, It would be Chris Claremont Some 15 years later Who would use the Malcolm X Martin Luther King Jr. Inspiration for Magneto Professor X rivalry Slash relationship As of the age of apocalypse Magneto was believed to be Eric Ledenshire a Sinta Gypsy And a Holocaust survivor He'd meet Charles Xavier In Israel and, there, and that's where the timeline Splits in the Prime Universe, Magnus and Xavier ex- Debating philosophy uh, And came to the conclusion That their points of view in society Were incompatible And so became enemies Magneto would swipe a cache of Nazi gold In order to finance his endeavors He runs into the X-Men during an attack On Cape Citadel military missile base And starts the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants
2: Once getting captured By the cosmic being The Stranger he gets chucked into the Savage Land. He fights the X-Men, he fights the Avengers, he fights the Defenders. Sounds kind of like a villain of the week at this point, even though Stan says he didn't see him as one. Sure. Uh, He's eventually reduced to infanthood by Alpha the Ultimate Mutant. More on him later. He's eventually re- restored to adulthood and captures the X-Men under the guise of Shi'ar agent Eric the Red. He starts softening after nearly killing Kitty Pride. He sees that she's wearing a Star of David and catches himself before he can
1: land a killing blow. Yeah, this is one of those very memorable Marvel moments uh, yes. that constantly gets recalled. I don't know if it still does, but it did for a while. Yes. Uh, he learns that Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are his children during Vision and the Scarlet Witch number no. 4, their first miniseries in February 1983 cover date. And then he's swept away to Battleworld with the X-Men for the Secret Wars event. Check out Weird Comics History Episode 9 for more on Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars. Uh, but this is notable for Magneto being left with the heroes when the Beyonders split those. He swept away into teams, hero and villain, naturally, because that's how we have to pit people against each other. <laughs> Upon his return to Earth, Magneto is voluntarily put on trial for his crimes against humanity and the rest of the world. Uh, the charges are dismissed. Because he was reborn and all that, ja- it's fine now.
2: What do you, you know? Yeah, you were made a baby. That's all.
1: That's a oh, new story. You know, Oh, no, that's in the that's distant memory. Whatever. Uh, he becomes headmaster of Xavier's Institute while Charlie's off making time with the Majestrix and then he guides the new mutants.
2: He also joins the Hellfire Club as its white white king, and eventually gives the black king Sebastian Shaw the boot. And we'll meet him pretty soon. He flips a script here, claiming that his uh, babyface turn was all a ruse to use the X Men and New Mutants as pawns while he takes over the world. During Acts of Vengeance, Magneto teams very briefly with the Red Skull, who you know pals with Hitler.
1: Yeah, that must have been a little, uh, awkward, a little huh? awkward. You know, awkward, yeah. you know. You know, just keep your enemies close, but that's a a tough one to keep close. That's a toughie. Uh, Magneto would work with the X-Men and Nick Fury again during a Savage Land adventure, circa Uncanny X-Men number 275, during which he got extra chummy with Rogue. After the Muir Island saga, Magneto was back as a bad guy, commanding the Acolytes to do some pretty nasty stuff. Thought dead after asteroid M's destruction in X-Men Volume Two, Number Three, December 1991 cover date. Magneto would lay low until Fatal Attraction's, where he'd go from villain to full-on foaming at the mouth villain.
0: <laughs> yes, he
2: interrupts the funeral of Ileana S. resputin who just passed of the Legacy Virus, the first casualty. Wow. Uh, he sways longtime X-Man Colossus over to his cause, so X-Men, uh, so Colossus leaves the X-Men and joins the Acolytes. And, of course, he notably yanks Wolverine's adamantium skeleton out of his hairy little body. Fatal Attractions, as mentioned, and we might mention it a few more times, ended with Professor X psychically lobotomizing Magneto. Uh, which we're gonna be saying a lot more. It seems like, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh we got Quicksilver, real name Pietro Maximoff. First appearance: X Men number four, March nineteen sixty four. Cover date by Stan and Jack. Uh, he was still Magneto's son at this point, uh, and he might be again at this point. Who knows?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we're just gonna go we're gonna with, go that, with that for this, though. Yeah.
2: Because back in the mid nineties, <laughs> there were no movie rights to play with, so there was no need to really distance a quote Avengers character from a quote X Men character.
1: Ah, uh, good times, good times. Oh, hey, yeah. uh, he was part of Pietro was part of Magneto's first brotherhood Of evil mutants and turned into a good guy Pretty quickly joining the Avengers During the Caps Kooky Quartet era Avengers number 16 That was May 1965 cover date He and his sister the Scarlet Witch Who we will meet soon Lost their powers and went home to Vundagore Mountain The boringest place on earth Ugh. Their powers came back and, and so did they They married the inhuman named Crystal
2: Do we care about the Inhumans yet
1: Nope still don't care Uh, (laughs) Together they had a daughter who they named Luna And Quicksilver would eventually join X-Factor and that's pretty much Where we're at right now
2: Mm -hmm. We got Storm real name Aurora Monroe first appearance Giant size X-Men number one May 1975 cover created by Len Wein And Dave Cockrum she joined the all-new X-Men, who saved the originals from Krokoa the Living Island. She was originally conceived as this shape-shifting, cat-like woman by Dave Cockrum for the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, I guess DC passed.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, it was revealed that she was a pickpocket growing up in Kenya, who just so happened to try and pick Professor X's pocket. A little while after joining the X-Men, she would become something of a mentor to Kitty Pride. Who really didn't like it when she got the Mohawk? Uh, she really reacted poorly to that. Uh, she reacted less poorly.
1: After all the outfits, Kitty Pride, you know, all the looks she had. I know, I mean, right? Come on, let let her have a little, you know, hair change. No big deal. <laughs>
2: no, she she was less upset with Storm saving her from the Morlocks. Uh, not sure which order these events happened, but they definitely did happen. All right. Uh, now Kitty's reaction to Storm's Mohawk look was based on artist Walt Simonson's daughter's reaction to seeing her father beardless for the first time I guess she freaked out and ran out of the room um, Now the mutant gizmo was Forge created a power nullifier and was planning on zapping Rogue with it in order to get her powers under control He hit Storm instead and uh, she was left powerless for a little while Even depowered, she was able to best Cyclops in a one-on-one fight to take over leadership of the X-Men. This was Uncanny X-Men number 201, also notable as being the first appearance of Scott's son, Nathan.
1: Let me tell you, you're getting your butt kicked by a depowered mutant. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you you deserve to uh, (laughs) abdicate, I think. Uh, She spent some time in another dimension with Forge in a story called Life Death, and it's here that her powers returned. Following Fall of the Mutants, Storm would be one of the Outback X-Men. She'd be regressed into a child state by Nanny, who we will meet later. And she was rescued by Gambit in his first appearance, and more on him later on, too. During the Extinction Agenda, Storm is brainwashed by the Genocean Magistrates. But everything's cool by the end, and Storm's an adult again. Following the Muir Island Saga, Storm became leader of the X-Men's Gold Strike Force. Now we talk about Iceman, real name Bobby Drake, first appearance in one of the original five, X-Men number one, September 1963 cover date, created by Stan and Jack. Created according to Stan Lee, essentially as a copy of the Human Torch, but cold. (laughs) Following the first 66, Bobby Bobby would join the champions alongside fellow X-Man angel. Champions writer Tony Isabella hoped to write a buddy series with the two, but Marvel editorial insisted it be an entire team. He joined, Bobby would join the Defenders when the champions went defunct. On television, he became one of Spider-Man's amazing friends. Yeah, I remember that. Probably better than any of this. Uh, the launch of X-Factor brought the original five back together, and Bobby, being an original X-Man, was part of that. During his time in X-Factor, Iceman had his powers supercharged by Loki and had to wear an inhibitor belt to keep himself under control. Following the Muir Island saga, Bobby would return to the X-Men proper on the Gold Strike Force.
2: We got Nightcrawler, real name Kurt Wagner First appearance, Giant Size X-Men number one May 1975 cover by Len, Len Wein and Dave Cockrum He, like the rest of them, joined the all-new X-Men Who saved the originals from Krakoa, the living island uh, Though he was originally conceived by Dave Cockrum As a member of DC's Outsiders
1: uh, Not those Outsiders
2: Or those Outsiders
1: No, uh, this was a team <laughs> that was set to spit out from the Legion of Superheroes If you see hear the name Dave Cockrum and DC Legion of Superheroes must be the only thing that follows (laughs) Uh, DC editor Murray Bolton off-pass because he thought the character Was too funny-looking
2: There's no funny-looking Legionnaires,
1: right? I know, come on, those are a very serious group (laughs) Um, Stuck around the X-Men Until he was knocked into a coma During the Mutant Massacre And as he was recuperating, the X-Men died In Dallas during the Fall of the Mutants From here, he'd hook up With Excalibur, where he'd remain Up to and past this storyline Back to the story. We
0: got Sabretooth going. After all, we traitors like to stick together.
1: The rogue says. Did any of y'all recognize this stranger?
0: Magneto goes. Only for what he is, rogue. Like ourselves, a mutant, persecuted and hunted by his own kind. Step away from him, Eunice. Now, so say the X-Men.
1: And then Sabretooth lets Wild Child off his leash. Oh yeah, Sabretooth leaves a wild child around on a leash (laughs) Forgot that Uh, Blink goes to hop into action, but Sabretooth cuts her off Get back, squirt This feels very much like the usual Wolverine buddies up to a teenage girl gimmick We've seen a few times in the Prime X-Men books I think this is sort of a take on that, right?
2: Gotta be, gotta be, yeah Now one of the Infinite sneaks up behind Rogue However, Nightcrawler bamfs in and swipes the baddie's
1: spear He says, my, what a big spear you have, mein friend what the I'll take that, Dunker Now
2: the frazzled Infinite immediately surrenders. Rogues all screw you anyway and socks him good for, for no reason, I <laughs> guess.
0: Now the yeah. Infinite goes They
1: the even like trying goes, to like warn her off, like, no 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 bad do it.
0: Now the Infinite
2: goes flying right into a wall made out of morph. Morph changes into a wall and Takes the impact. Now Storm does some stormy stuff to eliminate the other infinites. Meanwhile, Eunice has snuck up behind Magneto and places a gun against his helmet.
1: He says, Plastic gun, Magneto. Filled with non-fair shells. One twitch and you're a foot short. You heard me. Call your X-Men off or be a martyr. I win either way.
2: Suddenly, Eunice is overcome with...
1: Ice? And a decidedly Swedish accent. But anyway, he says, (laughs) Come on, make a choice. I'm not kidding. I can't move. Freezing. No. No. Eunice has gone to pieces. And then Iceman says, The big man's got to find better enforcers. These guys go to pieces too easy. I can't believe you let him get the drop on you.
0: I was in no
2: danger, Iceman. Pietro would have intercepted the bullets with ease.
1: This time, how about losing this death wish attitude? We won! Celebrate! And unfortunately for, well, everybody, this invites Magneto to go full-blown soliloquy on us.
2: Once more, the X-Men stand victorious atop the ashes of those who have paid the ultimate price for genetic intolerance.
0: The soldiers of apocalypse jackboot ever forward, each with each step crushing any hope that humans and mutant might someday exist in harmony.
1: Magneto thinks about how he, too, once believed in the concept of Homo Superior and how that all changed.
0: It was a fleeting notion spurned by the arrogance of youth
2: and quelled by the spirit of a long-dead friend. But for his grace, Magneto would surely have become mankind's greatest foe. His name, Was Charles Xavier And he was the greatest man I have ever known
1: And he continues, yeah Yeah, really, he keeps going
2: Xavier had a dream (laughs) A vision of racial unity
1: Again with the race, yeah I mean, are mutants really just another race? And then if if so, so there's like White mutant, black mutant Is that how it works? I don't really get it
0: (laughs) With his dying breath He entrusted
2: the deliverance of his dream to me Twenty years later, I imagine him looking down from the heavens at what his world has become and wondering why I have failed him
0: so miserably.
1: Thankfully, Blink interjects here and asks the boss to maybe chicken and they a mysterious stranger. You see, Sabretooth's trying to question him and it's going about as well as you might expect, very violently and meanly. (laughs) Uh, Magneto approaches and the man unhoods, revealing himself to be Bishop, the real name Lucas Bishop, first appearance in Uncanny X-Men number 282 November 1991 Cover date created by Jim Lee And Will Sportasio We meet Bishop when he was a member of the XSC as Xavier's security enforcers From the far flung future Flanked by fellow XSCers Malcolm and Randall, we assume their last name Was Redshirt Bishop, came to, we, we never see them again uh, Came to the 20th century To chase down the time traveling baddie Trevor Fitzroy He'd be invited to join the X-Men, a team who saw he saw his legends during his youth.
2: Bishop lunges toward Magneto.
1: You murderer! Your fault! All of it! What? Legion! Warp time! Killed Xavier! Let him die! Not our world! All twisted! Your, your fault! And Magneto is unmoving, and suddenly Bishop gets a bit woozy and eventually falls asleep. Sabretooth goes, that's a magnetic trick. How'd you do that? By
0: slowing the blood flow of iron to his
1: brain. Couldn't he have done that to Eunice, like a minute right? ago? Like, what's the deal? <laughs> do you know him? Of course not. Thought you recognized him. You were
0: mistaken. To the compound. Now! Mistaken, my hairy...
1: And C <laughs> uh, We shift over to a laboratory Where decidedly more gray, um, Where decidedly more gray Hank Beast McCoy Is performing some very painful procedures To the blob Let's meet them right now We got Dark Beast is the alternate beast we're looking at mm-hmm. Real name Hank McCoy First appearance X-Men number one That's that September 1963 book By Stan and Jack one of the original five, Beast was initially without fur. Uh, he had some oversized mitts and feats, though. He could kind of move around like a gorilla. Following his tenure with the X-Men, a read once they stopped putting original stories in the X-Men book, Hank would get himself a job at the Brand Corporation, a subsidiary, subsidiary of the evil Marvel Corporation, Roxxon, as a research biologist. He'd create a serum, which was considered such an advance that folks wanted to steal it. And when they came to steal it, Henry did what any right-minded scientist would do. He drinks it. Mm-hmm. This, this was in Amazing Adventures number 11, Yeah, March 1972. <laughs> Why not, right? This is our last chance, I guess. Let's let's see <laughs> what flavor of code red this is. So uh, this is how Beast first got furry, though he was more gray than blue at first at this point. Uh, he'd mastered the art of rubber manipulation and mass making overnight and would wear a Hank McCoy mask or not to scare the bejesus out of those around him, which really... Was just hilarious to think about (laughs) Uh, Also a painful looking harness To straighten his hunch
2: Yeah he was hunched over Now uh, Beast would join up with the Avengers Where he formed a friendship with Wonder Man And uh, he would eventually join the Defenders as well He along with the rest of the original five Would come back together as X-Factor Early on in the run Beast went furless again That didn't didn't last all that long Following the Muir Island saga Beast would rejoin the X-Men proper And serve on the Blue Strike Force Uh, The Beast of the Age of Apocalypse world Is just a little bit more twisted Than the
0: fellow that we know and love
1: Pretty cruel guy, I gotta say He
0: sure is
2: Um, We also have the blob Real name Frederick J. Dukes First appearance, X-Men number 3, January 1964, created by Stan and Jack. He was a member of a circus sideshow because he's a tremendously obese and immovable object. (laughs) Uh, Early on, Professor X was able to sense Dukes' mutant ability, and so the X-Men went out on a recruitment mission. It was a no-go. Blob ain't no team player. Though that uh, didn't stop him from eventually joining the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And later the Freedom Force and several other iterations of the Brotherhood. uh, Maybe he just didn't like the X-Men.
1: He he didn't like the cut of uh, Xavier's jib. That's all there was to it, you know. Take it personally. So uh, Blob is eventually able to break out from his bindings and he lunges right for his captor. Butcher! And the beast says, oh my. No more. No more. Before he can do too much damage to the bouncing beast, the blob is leveled by a blast from Havoc. Real name, Alex Summers, first appearance X-Men number 54, March 1969, created by Arnold Drake and Don Heck, the brother of Scott Cyclops Summers, who we'll meet soon enough. He, like his brother, was tossed out of an airplane by his parents when their plane came under attack from a Shi'ar battleship. They had a parachute, of course, not—it was not that cruel. Uh, He'd meet the original X-Men after earning a degree in geophysics He was kidnapped by the living monolith, living pharaoh Who feared that Alex's power might rival his own He joined the X-Men alongside an on-again, off-again girlfriend, Lorna Polaris Dane He was taken captive by Krakoa the Living Island And then they quit the team post-Giant size
2: Havoc would work on Muir Island doing some genetic research for Moira McTaggart, who we will meet later uh, Upon return to the X-Men, Havoc would have something of a relationship with his brother's ex-wife, Madeline Pryor We will meet her another day uh, He'd be part of those Outback X-Men, and he would eventually enter the Siege Perilous Coming out the other side of the siege, he was an amnesiac in Genosha And somehow worked his way up to being a high-ranking magistrate in the Genosian army that's a good way uh, to wow. use
1: your, uh, your amnesia. Yeah. Uh,
2: <laughs> he'd eventually come to his senses and would become the team leader for the second incarnation of X Factor.
1: Yeah, and then after Havoc busts in the scene, Beast says, Whew, impeccable timing, Alex. Mr. Dukes, meet Prelith Summers. We call him Havoc, as in Rex.
2: Yeah, never would have figured that out. <laughs> um, now, Havoc goes to give the Blob another blast for good measure. However, Mr. Dukes is quick to grab the beast and hurl him right in his direction. <laughs> he then lunges. Like, it's a lot of lunging in this book. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: uh, he lunges again. Now, this time, he's stopped by an optic blast from... Cyclops Real name, Scott Summers First appearance, X-Men number one September 1963, Stan Jack uh, This is the brother of the fellow who we just met One of the original five X-Men Usually considered the first ever uh, Scott ran away from the orphanage he was living in When he was 16 He winds up nearly being taken under the wing of Small time crook, Jack O'Diamonds Before Professor X could intervene He was romantically linked with Marvel Girl From just about the very start
1: do you think he he looked between the two potential mentors he was like well i got i have a professor or i have jack o diamonds i think I got, I'm gonna...
2: I got the guy throwing dice in the air
1: <laughs> or i got the guy with his own school <laughs> i think i'm going to go i think i'm going to go with yeah. him uh so scott led both the x men and the all new x men when the originals without himself were captive of Kra- Krakoa the living island during a space adventure he discovered that the swashbuckling starjammer Corsair was actually his father, Christopher Summers Following the Dark Phoenix saga, Scott quit the team And immediately fell in love with and married Jean Grey's doppelganger The couple would have a child named Nathan
2: Who Scott would abandon at the first sign that Jean Grey, the actual love of his life
0: Was still alive Okay.
2: (laughs) Now Scott became the leader of X-Factor And after his ex-wife is revealed to be the Goblin Queen Gets custody of their son Because uh, you know she was dead yeah. uh, They would uh, call Baby Nate By his middle name, Christopher During a later adventure Scott wound up having to send Nathan Christopher Into the future You see, he was infected with a techno-organic virus And uh, would die if left in the present Soon after Scott would rejoin the X-Men proper And lead the Blue Strike Force Scott and Gene would finally wed In X-Men Volume 2, Number 30 March 1994
1: cover Yeah, you see, infected with a techno-organic Virus, that's why we had to send That person into the future Yes, that's, that's what you tell the police When they ask, when they ask <laughs> where's, After where's the, the missing yeah. <laughs> person, oh We had to send them into the future uh, So here Beast says Ah, if it isn't Or leave evil eye himself And just in the nick of time salutations, Cyclops And Cyclops Proceeds to read the Beast the Riot Act
2: before we go on, it's worth mentioning here that a lot of the differences of appearance here is if, if you had, like, long hair in the real universe, you had short hair now, and if you have short Twice. hair in the universe... Yeah. Yeah. Vice versa. So Cyclops has very long hair here, and he only has one eye. So the visor only covers the, the the ruby quartz is only over one eye.
1: And and it's more of like it looks more of like a pair of eyeglasses or something. Yes. It's, uh, it does. Like like everyone seems to have acquired more hardware in this universe in yes. general, right?
2: Like we we ditched the pouches for hardware. we
1: got a lot of stuff on you. Yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: Cyclops says,
2: "What in Sin's name do you think you're doing? You were ordered to shut this lab down." The Kelly pact that Apocalypse has brought before the humans Specifically halts genetic experimentation
1: And this Kelly pact is very c- pact is very likely a nod to Senator Robert Kelly Who is the, the prime X-Men had several run-ins with uh, Robert Kelly first appeared in X-Men number 133 May 1980 cover date He was created by Claremont and Byrne An anti-mutant activist spurred on by some visual trickery From Mastermind to believe he was being attacked by the X-Men He became a backer of Mutant Control Act and Project Wide Awake. It was his murder that led to the dystopian future of Days of Future Past. Good thing that never really happened, (laughs) considering where we are now. Uh, Named after one of Claremont's professors at Bard University, the poet Robert Kelly. Fellow Bard University alum is, of course, Bob Haney's nephew, Chevy Chase It always always comes back to Chevy Chase Doesn't it (laughs) Uh, Oh and the what in sin's name Is probably referring to Mr. Sinister
2: Yeah we'll meet him in just a sec Uh, Now it's made clear fairly Quickly that the Summers brothers relationship Is rather icy on this Earth number 295
1: Yeah Havoc says I'm the head of security I make the reports if they need to be made And I take my responsibilities Seriously Not like some pampin' brats who breeze in from the pens just to throw their weight around.
0: And if I hadn't come, little brother,
1: what then? I could have handled it, you insufferable. Then from
2: off panel,
1: Mr. Sinister says, Aha, lads, haven't I raised you better than this? Will the Summers Brothers ever get along?
2: I was hoping you'd do like a Frankenfooter footer for him. <laughs> uh, now, Mr. Sinister, real name, Dr. N- Dr. Nathaniel Essex. First appearance, Uncanny X-Men number 221, September 1987, created by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri. We were introduced to Sinister while he led the Marauders, those bad guys that were responsible for slaughtering many a Morlock during the Mutant Massacre. He was originally conceived as a very strange and special young boy.
1: Yeah, about him Claremont says, Dave Cockrum and I went over ideas and what we were coming towards was a mysterious young boy, apparently an 11-year-old at the orphanage where Scott, you know, Cyclops was raised, who turned out to be the secret master of the place. In effect, what we were setting up was a guy who was aging over a lifespan of roughly a thousand years. Even though he looked like an 11-year-old, he'd actually been alive since the mid-century at this point. He was actually about 50. He had all the grown-up urges. He's growing up in his mind, but his body isn't capable of handling it, which makes him quite cranky. And of course, looking like an 11-year-old who'd take him seriously in the criminal community. So he built himself an agent in a sense, which was Mr. Sinister. That was, in effect, the rationale behind Sinister's rather, for want of a better word, childish or kid-like appearance. The costume, the look, uh, the face, it's what would scare a child. Even when he was designed, he wasn't what you'd expect in a guy like that which is actually a lot more interesting than what we actually got, I gotta say. It's true. I like like the background than the actual, but that's fine.
2: It's very true. And, uh, of course, it's Claremont, so we have to talk about the urges. Yes, (laughs) always. (laughs) Now, something that that stuck from uh, the original uh, plot here was Sinister's obsession with Summers' DNA. Uh, He would be revealed to have created Madeline Pryor, that clone of Jean Grey who Scott Summers wound up marrying and having a child with. That child, spoiler alert, Was cable Uh, Maddie would go on to become the Goblin Queen During the Inferno event But that's a bio for another day Uh, Mr. Sinister unwittingly unleashed the legacy virus After opening a canister he believed to contain
1: Summer's DNA He loves that Summer's DNA boy Dude's got a fetish (laughs) Yeah um, No
2: Around this time, uh, pre-Age of Apocalypse, or just into the age of Apocalypse here, the most notorious uh, understanding of Mr. Sinister was his mention of Scott Summers' brothers, plural. Mm. Up to this point, we only knew Scott and Alex. Uh, It wouldn't be until X-Men Deadly Genesis miniseries that ran from January through July 2006 that this loose thread would be tied. Uh, it, I really wish it was Adam X, but no, they, they decided not to make it Adam X, unfortunately. Oh well. Now, it's pretty clear from the get-go that Scott is the favorite son. Sinister requests that they walk together, leaving Alex behind to clean up
1: whatever's left of the blob. It's messed up. Sinister says, Hmm, Scott, I have to go away. Sir, no. If, if
2: it's something I've done...
1: Not everything is about you, Scott.
2: You see, this is what happens when you have favorite children.
1: Really? You know, you just play them against each other, really mess with yeah. their minds.
2: Now, Sinister goes on to explain that one of their own has fallen prey to a madness which may lead to an Armageddon.
1: I mean, really, this isn't Armageddon. Look around. You know, it's, <laughs> uh, how, how, how much worse is it going to get? This is ridiculous.
2: That's right. Uh, well, it's, uh, you know, uh, Scott does exactly that. He looks around and uh, he looks across the bay and sees. Sentinels Now the Sentinels first appeared in X-Men number 14 November 1965 cover Created by Stan and Jack These were mutant hunting robots uh, Created by Dr. Bolivar Trask Who we will meet a little bit later The Mark I Sentinels weren't as large As the ones that we usually think of Like the ones from the cartoon or anything Uh, Unless of course you're thinking of the Mark I I usually
1: am not but yeah
2: (laughs) A few people are (laughs) Now the Mark II Sentinels were created by Bolivar's son Larry Trask Larry, a mutant, wore a medallion around his neck that blocked the Sentinel's sensors. Didn't know he was a mutant, either. Uh, the Mark IIs were defeated when Cyclops suggested they fly into the sun.
1: Okay. Yeah, why not? Uh, Mark IIs Mark <laughs> were created by Dr. Stephen Lang, a federal mutant researcher under Project Armageddon, which doesn't sound ominous in the slightest. <laughs> Good lord. Uh, There was also Project Wide Awake and Nimrod, just robots hunting mutants. You know how they be. That's what they do. Uh, The Sentinels are flying right past the window of Manhattan's Heaven Nightclub, a neutral zone that welcomes both humans and mutants, and it's run by none other than Angel, whose real name is Warren Worthington III. First appearance, X-Men number one, September 63 cover by Stan and Jack, one of the original five. Following the first 66 issues of X-Men, Angel would join the champions, but he would return to the X-Men not too long after that, and he'd also join the Defenders, because why not? That's kind of what you have to do, right? Yeah. As you cycle, the As you yeah. cycle through the teams, you're going to hit Defenders eventually. Uh, he'd rejoin the rest of the founding X-Men and X-Factor. Warren lost his wings early on and was believed to have committed suicide shortly after that. He was actually taken in by Apocalypse and transformed into the razor-winged Archangel. Archangel, sorry. He was also Apocalypse's horseman of death. He'd eventually come to his senses, sorta, and rejoin his pals, and Angel had a constant struggle controlling his bloodthirsty metal wings. Following the Muir Island saga, Archangel would rejoin the X-Men and serve on the Gold Strike Force.
2: Yes, Angel holds a glass aloft and goes a toast to the mechanical arm of the human resistance And the shortness of its reach
0: After (laughs) after
2: that, doing my little bottom to it Now he introduces tonight's entertainment A singer named Scarlet Say The Scarlet Witch, yes Now real name, Wanda Maximoff Though referred here as Scarlet Mackenzie First appearance, X-Men number 4, March 1964 Covered by Stan and Jack she debuted alongside her brother and father as a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. She would follow her brother to the Avengers as part of Cap's kooky quartet. The fourth member was Hawkeye, by the way. If uh, oh, She'd uh, be romantically linked to the Vision an Android. They even had some kids together. Sorta. Sort of. Uh, during her time with the West Coast Avengers, Wanda would briefly be corrupted by Magneto. This was following Vision Quest, a story wherein the Vision lost his humanity, so she wasn't exactly in the good place to uh, begin with. She'd get over it, though. Uh, going into the Age of Apocalypse, Wanda was still a member of the Avengers. Uh, it's worth noting that the Mackenzie surname belongs to a certain submariner.
0: Hmm.
1: So, as she takes the stage, Warren's approached by an associate who we know to be Karma, real name Shian Koyman. Man. Uh, first appearance. Marvel team up number 100 December 1980 cover date created by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller One half of a pair of psychic twins Who offer an adventure with Spider-Man Was recommended as a potential New Mutants Member to Professor X by Reed Richards. While under control of The Shadow King she Ate a lot and became morbidly Obese. Uh-huh. She'd eventually leave The New Mutants to search for her lost siblings Now Karma informs Her boss that he has a guest She refers to him as the Cajun, but we know him better as...
2: Gambit. Real name, Remy LeBeau. First appearance, Uncanny X-Men number 266, August 1990. Created by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee. It's worth noting that his first published cameo appearance was actually an Uncanny X-Men annual number 14, July 1990 cover, which featured art by Mike Collins. Now, he's a thief from New Orleans who was prophesized to unite the thieves' and assassins' guilds, and stories that have guilds in them with Gambit are very, very boring. Usually
1: pretty boring, yeah. Ugh, the worst. He's one of these characters, to me, that's always good in, on paper. Well, I guess yeah. he is sort of um, always good in theory than he is uh, in there practice. Uh, though it hadn't yet been revealed Gambit led the Marauders into the Morlock Tunnels For the Mutant Massacre This would eventually be revealed in Uncanny X-Men Number 350, though by then we'd already All figured it all out <laughs> Remi would join the X-Men shortly before The Original Five returned to the fold And was romantically linked with Rogue Prior to the Age of Apocalypse Gambit was on the X-Men's Blue Strike Force
0: Hello Gambit It's been a while since the Louisiana calling. How have you...
1: Let's cut to it, Angel. I need to talk to Magnetona.
0: And what makes you think I can help you?
1: Because Angel spelled sideways as angle. If anyone knows to get to him, it's you, for sure.
2: <laughs> Honey, child. Um, <laughs> Gambit <laughs> is able to convince Warren to give him a hand. After all, he owes him one for something that went down in Louisiana. Uh, now, this conversation is being watched via a nearby window. Behind it stands Sebastian Shaw. First appearance, X-Men number 129, January 1980, cover by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. He is the black king of the Hellfire Club and a key part in the corruption of Phoenix into Dark Phoenix back in the long ago. Prior to the Age of Apocalypse, Shaw was killed by his own son, Shinobi Shaw. This happened in X-Factor number 67 in June 1991 cover date. He eventually gets better, but not until this story's over with.
1: Did his son kill him because he named him Shinobi Shaw? You know <laughs> had anything to do with it?
2: He had a Sega fixation. He was like, you
1: son of a... You know, I like Sonic. Anyway, uh, back in what's left of Westchester County, we rejoin the X-Men. Rogue enters a nursery and checks in with Nanny. First appearance was X-Men number 112, August 1978 cover date, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. Now Nanny is there keeping an eye on Charles Lensherer. Real name is Charles Lensherer. First appearance was this very issue, X-Men Alpha number 1, February 1995 cover date. Magneto and Rogue take young Charles and put him right to bed. And that's what I call quality time. (laughs) Yep, you get home, send him to bed. (laughs) Go to bed now. (laughs)
2: Magneto goes, Nanny will tuck you in, and mother will keep will help you with your prayers. Mother?
1: Now I lay me down to sleep, I play the I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If the magic come before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take.
2: Got a note here that due to Rogue's uncontrollable powers, she has never actually touched her son without gloves. Never kissed him. All that stuff. It's pretty bleak, but nothing new to
1: the no, X. that's a everyday, everyday trials for them. Yes.
2: Also, the prayer "Now I lay me down to sleep" is a bedtime prayer from the 18th century, uh, usually attributed to Joseph Addison, an English essayist, essayist and poet. That has had a number of different versions throughout the years, uh, but the sentiment is usually the same. Uh, so maybe Rogue's is just as valid as. Uh, Sure, why not? (laughs) Now, uh, our man Bishop is back among the awake, and he wants answers.
1: Yeah, he says to Magneto, You, tell them. Rogue says, tell us what. I was there. I saw your crime. Eric, what's he going on about? Tell them exactly what happened to Charles Xavier, Magneto.
2: Magneto ain't having none of it, and he just KOs Bishop with a magnetic blast. (laughs) Uh, He does have an idea, though. He says to Rogue, the X-Men's telepathic options have been sorely limited. The only power that can reach into our stranger's mind
1: is yours. And scene again. And so we shift over to wherever the hell Mr. Sinister went off to We'll call it Elsewhere because that's what the caption says And he is greeted by
2: Abyss Real name Nils Steiger First appearance right here baby hey. uh, This is a uh, horseman of apocalypse and uh, That's all we really need to know for now uh, we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about him later
1: Yeah Sinister says Amusing yourself Abyss Always we have been summoned. The Master waits with his most trusted subjects. Where is Mikhail?
2: Now, the Mikhail he speaks of doesn't appear here, but we'll meet him anyway. It's Mikhail Rasputin. First appearance Uncanny X Men, number 285, February 1992, created by Jim Lee, Wills Picasso, and John Byrne. A cosmonaut and brother to Colossus and Magic. During one mission, he was yanked through a dimensional rift and uh, wound up on a strange planet. He assimilated pretty quickly and uh, would even marry one of the locals. A rift reopened during a civil war, and Mikhail was the only one with the power to close it. When he did, the backlash wound up killing a whole lot of folks, including his wife. Uh, With the aid of the X-Men, Mikhail returned to Earth. And as you might imagine, he lost his mind. Uh, He'd stay with the Morlocks for a bit and become a real thorn in the side for the
0: X-Men.
1: Well, it looks here like Mikhail has snubbed the master. That's okay, though. At least the truant officer of the damned has shown up, otherwise known as Holocaust. Real name? Nemesis. <laughs> I mean, what? what? <laughs> anyway, uh, first appearance, holy smokes, right here. What a, this is a collector's item, special number. Number one issue, bagged and boarded. Uh, though he did get a mention in 1993's Strife's strike file one shot. Apocalypse's son, and that's all we need to know for the moment. It would later be referred to simply as Nemesis, probably for the reasons you're all thinking.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little too hot for uh,
0: yeah, <laughs> hot maybe, for comics. Maybe Holocaust was not the best date.
2: Probably not, and, and you know, especially when because this guy has an action figure too. You don't want that on a pick uh, on a toy.
1: Plus, plus, um, you have a character also that he interacts with that was actually like in the actual Holocaust. In the- <laughs> so like we can pretend it didn't happen at all. You know, like anyway. <laughs>
2: Uh, they are then joined by the master and ruler of America himself, you know, Apocalypse.
1: Oh, that guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, real name, En Sabanur. First appearance, X-Factor number 5, June 1986, created by Bob Layton, Louise Simonson, and Jackson Geis. Now, we meet Apocalypse when he was revealed as the super-secret leader of the Alliance of Evil. Though, it almost wasn't to be. The outgoing X-Factor writer, Bob Layton, originally planned to reveal this leader as being... The Owl. It's hilarious. From
1: yeah. I mm. almost, was this ever a what-if where they, where they played with this? <laughs> if, I, I, if not, I, I, it needs to be. I'd love to see it, yeah. Just like, just so no. it, whatever. <laughs>
2: Now, the incoming X Factor writer Louise Simonson was given express instructions by editor Bob Harris that this reveal had to be a little bit more exciting than a D-level <laughs> Uh Bob says, "All I had communicated to Louise was my desire that an A-level first-class character be introduced. I wanted a Magneto-level villain who would who would up the stakes and give the X Factor team a reason to exist." Of the character, Louise says the following. Using Darwinian principles, survival of the fittest, to kill off the weak and force the survivors to grow stronger, to push humanity to get better and more powerful. He considers himself the apocalypse of modern man and the father of what humanity humanity will come next, mutant kind. Where Magneto sees mutants as the next step of evolution and strives to protect all mutants, Apocalypse believes in absolute survival of the fittest.
1: That's a pretty good description of what's happening here right Absolutely. now Yeah, uh, Apocalypse was a thorn on X-Factor's side for the entire initial run He made Warren Worthington his horseman of death And he infected Scott's son with a techno-organic virus Forcing them to send the baby and In the future we discuss that <laughs> incredible storyline Before Apocalypse saw young Nathan as being the one who would eventually destroy him There was also this really big deal concerning the Twelve, which Marvel let dangle for over a decade and totally screwed the pooch on around the turn of the century. Apocalypse was thought to be dead just prior to the Muir Island saga, though he popped up again during the Executioner's Song. There will be time
0: later to deal with Mikhail's lapse in judgment. We will find him as we sift through the ashes of the Earth. Then the moment has truly come... The forces of the Brotherhood are indeed in place for the final strike, Sinister. As we purge the country, so now do we
1: cleanse the globe. And Apocalypse continues.
0: Listen closely, and hear the toll of doom as it chimes for humankind worldwide. Hear the flatskins cry for a dream stolen as they drop their guard. The god of false promises of hope and empty treaties of Peace. Kelly packed indeed. So often do I rely on the naivete of humans, and so rarely am I disappointed.
1: (laughs) Sinister raises the concern that this genetic civil war might actually claim both sides. Apocalypse isn't exactly pleased. Sinister says, I merely wonder if the mutants will live through your Armageddon. Does it matter? What
0: care I have for the fate of the masses? Whether four or four billion fall in the days and weeks to come, the strongest and the fittest will survive,
1: and they will form the army of tomorrow. Yeah, I don't think that was quite the answer Sinister wanted to hear.
2: And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, you never question authority.
1: Exactly. You don't ever. You might hear something you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the fellows next discuss strategy. Worth noting that there's a special name for the group of sinister abyss, holocaust, and Mikhail. They're called the Four Horsemen. Mm. First appearance in X Factor number fifteen, April 1987 cover date, created by Louise and Walter Simonson. First incarnation included the Morlock Plague in, in the role of Pestilence, this first appearance on Canny X-Men number 169, May 1983, cover date by Claremont and Paul Smith, Abraham Kieros' War, his first appearance in X-Factor number 11, December 1986, cover date created by the Simonsons, Autumn Rolfston as Famine, first appearance in X-Factor number 12, January 1987, cover date created by the Simonsons, and finally, in the role of Death, a D-winged, and then re-winged with meaner wings. <laughs> Warren Worthington III, though he'd eventually be replaced by the Morlock Caliban. First appearance on *Canny X-Men* number 148, August 1981. Cover date created by Claremont and Dave Cockrum. So, not the ones we just met at all. Four different no, people no. entirely. <laughs> uh, the the scene concludes with Mister Sinister silently pondering some of his personal scheming which might land him in hot water with the man in charge.
2: The next scene opens in London, where a cloaked man finds himself the
1: target of an attack. Whoa, deja vu, man, just like the (laughs) beginning. Uh, A buffed-out fella in a torn trench coat and headband lunges at the... More lunging, too, lunges at the man. The dude goes, mutants! And Wolverine says, and proud of it, boy Oh. He says this as he unleashes
2: his claws with a snick, with a C. Yeah,
1: isn't that weird? That stuck with me, too. I was like, yeah, that's a little strange, but whatever.
2: Uh, and, of course, this is Wolverine. But, for now, we'll call him Weapon X. Real name, James Howlett, though we only know him as Logan at this point. First appearance, a cameo in Incredible Hulk number 180, October 1974, cover date. His first full appearance is the following month in Hulk 181. Marvel Editor-in-Chief Roy Thomas asked uh, writer Len Wein to devise a character specifically named Wolverine, who is Canadian and of small stature and with a Wolverine's fierce temper. Wolverine would be part of the all-new X-Men, who were assembled in giant size, to rescue the originals from that very same Krakoa the Living Island. He'd uh, be a member of the X-Men from this point on with breaks every now and again until having his adamantium forcibly removed during the Fatal Attractions crossover. As we head into the Age of Apocalypse, Wolverine has bone claws and he's doing the loner thing. For a whole lot more on Wolvie As well as his first appearance Check out Cosmic Treadmill, episode 31 In the archives And you know, I think this guy might come up In the conversation again in the coming weeks so Yeah, we will fill in any blanks that are left
1: I, see, I seem to recall uh, People thought he was alright in the 90s he was, know, They had, dug him Yeah, they, they thought him. he was okay
2: and He was no Lobo, but he was okay
1: <laughs> Yeah, really <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Wolverine's accompanied by Jean Grey First appearance X-Men number one September 63 cover by Stan and Jack Yep, one of those original Five (laughs) romantically linked to Cyclops From just about the very start Uh, Leered at creepily by just about Everyone else, including Professor Xavier For -hmm. the most creepy part of it But yeah, she was always getting hit on uh, Especially in the early issues Following the first 66 and the rescue from Kirkoa by the all-new team in Giant Size Number 1, Gene would remain with the team, but would start acting rather oddly. During the Phoenix Saga, it would appear that Gene Gray died and was reborn as Phoenix, who iconically burst from the waters of Jamaica Bay. She would be corrupted by the Hellfire Club And would burninate a planet full of asparagus-shaped aliens I hate burned asparagus, personally Mm, Uh, She would lead to the Dark Phoenix Saga Or this would lead to the Dark Phoenix Saga Where Jean would sacrifice herself (laughs) For more on the uh, editorial mishegas regarding this Check out both Weird Comics History Episode 6 at the John Byrne bio And Cosmic Treadmill Episode 71 Which is really more or less a Jim Shooter biography
0: Indeed.
2: Now, when X-Factor was on the publishing docket, the fifth member remained a mystery. All folks knew that it was going to be Cyclops, Beast, Iceman, Angel, and good g-g-g-girl. Mm, originally set to be Dazzler. But, what if there were a way to complete the original five and bring Gene back into the fold? In a 2016 interview with me, for DC in the 80s, writer... <laughs> (laughs) Yeah, writer Kurt Busiek explained how he cracked the code You see, Phoenix was never actually Gene at all For the past little while, Gene had been in a cocoon under Jamaica Bay Kurt says, I was at the Ithaca Fan Fest And Roger Stern and his wife Carmella put me up at their place So we were talking, getting to know one another Well, we went out to lunch before heading to do a radio interview And we were talking about the X-Men Because I really liked the original X-Men Roger says to me, it's a pity you can't have the original group back again And I said, eh, there's always a way He reminded me that Jim Shooter has this rule And that that rule is that Gene is dead Uh, And I told him that I figured out a way around it And I outlined the story to him And he laughed and said it would actually work Now remember, even though we were both professional writers This was just us talking
1: He continues, a little while later And I wasn't aware of these conversations at the time He's talking to John Byrne And tells him that he'd met a guy who's figured out a way For you to get around that Shooter edict he outlined it to John, who thought it was a good idea and would actually work. When X-Factor was being started up, Bob Layton was writing it to the fifth member, and the fifth member of X-Factor was going to be Dazzler. John called up Bob and asked him if he wanted Gene back, because they now had a way to do it. He outlined the story to Bob, who liked it. And so, Jean was back on the table and back in the mix. She remained on X-Factor until the Muir Island saga, when she'd rejoin the X-Men proper and serve on the Gold Strike Force. In the lead-up to Age of Apocalypse, she and Cyclops would finally wed. Now Gene wonders if Logan cut uh, cut the buffed-out boyo. Did you cut him? Not yet. Won't have to, provided he takes us to his leader, pronto.
2: And the leader he's referring to are the muckety-mucks in the Human High Council. First appearance of this concept, right now. Uh, <laughs> they are a group of humans that oppose Apocalypse, which is... Probably what all humans should be doing, honestly
1: I would in this case, I'll tell you what
2: (laughs) And this group includes Maura McTaggart, who is known here as Maura Trask, her first appearance X-Men number 96, December 1975, cover created by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum Born Maura Kinross, she was an early Associate to Charles Xavier She married Joseph McTaggart and they gave birth to A boy named Kevin, who would become the Dangerous mutant Proteus she created the Muir Island research center which is also where she kept her dangerous son contained until of course he broke out and yeah. raised a whole lot of hell
1: that's what that's, uh, the, that's what happens on yeah. muir island there's no uh, all the time yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> they don't have locks on the doors they
1: don't, that's uh, a, it's a big problem <laughs>
2: <laughs> She's worked closely with the X-Men Even both before the team was officially created uh, Leading up to the Age of Apocalypse She was mostly linked with Excalibur Probably, you know, some proximity there yeah. uh, Worth not mentioning, even though we're not there yet And we won't be here uh, Moira would perform some deep research On the legacy virus Which, I don't know if we've mentioned it yet But it's the mutant-specific analog for AIDS, basically and uh, Moro would wind up being the first human to both catch and die from it.
1: Oh, wow, yeah. It's a totally fatal disease, right? Basically, <laughs> yep. what they gave to characters and they wanted to stop writing them, I felt. <laughs> they were it. like, just give them that old legacy virus. There we go. Uh, Bolivar Trask is also in the group. This His first appearance was X-Men number 14, November 1965, cover date. Created by Stan and Jack, human anthropologist and creator of the Sentinels. He ultimately realizes that the X-Men were actually the good guys and dies at their side fighting his very creations. And here, in this universe, he is Moira's husband.
2: We have Emma Frost, first appearance, X-Men 129, January 1980, cover date, by Claremont and Byrne, former white queen of the Hellfire Club and CEO of Frost International. She becomes the chairman of the board of trustees and headmistress of the Massachusetts Academy, from which she leads the Hellions, a team of young mutants, which are basically competition for Xavier's own new mutants. In a battle with Trevor Fitzroy in issue uh, 281 of Uncanny X-Men, the Hellions, are slaughtered, and Frost is left comatose. Uh, The X-Men take her in and nurse her. After having some comatose fun with Bobby Drake, Emma wakes up just in the nick of time for the Phalanx Covenant, after which she becomes the headmistress for Generation X at that very same Massachusetts Academy. Here in the Age of Apocalypse, she's depicted as having a large portion of her head shaved, the result of a lobotomy that eliminated her mutant abilities.
1: And then Brian Brian Braddock Whose first appearance was in Captain Britain Number 1, October 1976 Cover date, created by Chris Claremont And Herb Trimp Born and raised in the small town of Malden, Essex Brian Braddock inherited a fortune From his wealthy parents And then got into a motorcycle accident uh, Merlin and his daughter Roma Came to Brian's broken form and offered him The amulet of right or the sword of might And he chose the amulet and became Captain Britain Come on, dude uh, following the fall of the mutants and the arrival of the surviving X-Men, he became a leader of Excalibur and ran the operation out of his lighthouse.
2: Now Weapon X and Gene meet up with a uh, meet up with this team here inside of Big Ben or whatever's left of Big Ben. Actually,
1: yeah, it's a wreck. in order
2: <laughs> it is destroyed uh, in order to hand over some data rods <laughs>
1: that they'd gotten from Mister Sinister. Uh, I mean, they're just like. You know, big discs or something. Yeah, make it seem so. Make it seem such so like a special thing. <laughs> uh, that's what he was brooding about in the last scene, though. Obviously, Mister mm-hmm. Sinister wanted this this handoff to happen. Uh, Moira hands them off to Emma and Brian, and they leave. And Logan and Jean have a chat that fills in a few blanks.
2: What if we made the wrong call by agreeing to work for Sinister? How can we even trust him?
1: We'd be fools to, yeah. If we didn't know how much he stands to lose if Apocalypse gets his way. You know Sinister better than any of us, Red. Without you, we have no plan at all, eh? We do what we we have to. This world of pain won't last forever.
0: And with that, they kiss.
1: What?
0: Mm,
2: What they don't realize is they're being watched by another member of the Human High Council. This is Mariko Yoshida. First appearance, X-Men 118, February 1979 cover, created by Claremont Byrne. It's a former love interest and fiance to Wolverine, and also the half-sister of the Silver Samurai. She was poisoned by an assassin and the employee of Matsuo Tsurayaba Sur- 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 <laughs> Sur- yeah. in uh, Wolverine number 57. This is July 1992 cover date, and uh, she asked Wolverine to kill her in order to avoid the uh, painful death of poison, and that's exactly what he did. Every year hence, Wolverine would find Matsuo wherever he was And sever a single one of his body parts
1: And I just want to say really quickly that I think the big Turnaround here with Wolverine and Jean Grey being together is that when Wolverine first came to the team, one of the big thorns in Scott Summers' yeah. side was he kept hitting on Jean Grey. Although, as you pointed out, every male ever on the X Men <laughs> hit on Jean Grey, but I guess he was a little more aggressive. Scott didn't like him, and that
2: and Jean showed a little bit of interest. She, so. <laughs> right,
1: she showed a little bit of interest, and he wasn't he wasn't feeling that. So uh, this is sort of like a you know what might have been if they were together, and the entire world was destroyed. So, uh, back to Westchester, where Magneto shares his plan with the rest of the team, it's met with a pretty mixed reaction.
2: Quicksilver goes, how wise is this? A desperate act. You would risk your wife's sanity to glean insight from a madman?
1: Before they can engage with the plan, the team is suddenly overtaken by a force emanating from Bishop. There's also a figure lurking in the shadows. Mm -hmm. Then, Magneto's overcome by visions of a world not entirely like this one. And it he sees his first confrontation with... The Original Five This occurred, of course, in X-Men number one a September 63 cover day Jack and Stan, you know the deal uh, As if we haven't said Original Five enough today, this is obviously Referring to Cyclops, Marvel Girl Iceman, Angel, and Beast And uh, they first mixed it up with Magneto When he attacks Cape Citadel A missile center
2: Another vision is his formation of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Their first appearance, X-Men number 4, March 1964, Stan and Jack. The Brotherhood has had several incarnations, which we will very likely elaborate on throughout this little series. Uh, These are the originals, though. Magneto, Toad, Mastermind, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch.
1: He also sees the acolytes their first appearance in X-Men Volume 2 number 1 October 1991 cover date created by Claremont and Jim Lee a group of Magneto devotees who operated out of his space station Asteroid M most notable member was Fabian Cortez and he was a prick
0: he
2: was, indeed. Uh, he also sees that time that he was transformed into an infant by Alpha, the ultimate male... Ultimate male. <laughs> no, <laughs> ultimate mutant. Uh, the first appearance of Alpha was Defenders number 15, September 1960... I'm sorry, 1974. Created by Len Wein, Sema, and Klaus Janssen. Alpha is an artificial life form created by Magneto, who upon becoming aware that he's being used for nefarious acts, repaid his creator by regressing him to- to babyhood hey. uh, he then leaves earth to explore the infinite cosmos other bits he sees is when he met Charles Xavier uh, also that time that he and rogue were an item on the savage land uh, back around uncanny x-men 275 April 1991 and uh, that time where professor X was forced to give him that telepathic lobotomy that was x-men volume 225 number 25 October 1993
1: I mean how could he remember that even though it is another dimension <laughs> right how do you how do you remember your own lobotomy but all right Whatever.
2: Then, that figure lurking in the shadows, jumps out of the shadows, Whoa. revealing himself to be Gambit, who we already met, so we don't need to meet him again. Uh, he pushes Rogue out of the way of the hinky energy stuffs.
1: Yeah, Bishop says, I opened his eyes, showed him the truth.
0: The only truth here is that you're a lunatic. Isn't that right,
1: Father? Father? And Rogue says to Gambit, R-Rammy? What? How? Gambit says. Relax, Cherry. Take a deep.
2: Before he can finish that thought, Gambit is meoinked away by Sabretooth.
1: Quicksilver quickly gets
2: involved to inform Sabretooth that Gambit is actually an invited guest of his father's.
1: And boy, does Magneto look happy to see him.
2: Yeah, it's almost as, as like the sight of the Cajun Triggered some spontaneous acromegaly In the uh, uh, magnetism. Really his face is all bananaed out It's
1: just like, where he um, like he had a, <laughs> Something drink or something, I don't know what's going <laughs> on
2: Now Magneto then requests Nightcrawler head off to find his mother More on that and her in coming episodes Then
1: He dismisses everybody It's so funny <laughs> And Gabbett says what we're all thinking, he says Yep I didn't come this far to be ignored, Magnus. You say you need me? I want to know why, why am I here for sure now? (laughs) And Rogue says, let it drop, Remy.
2: Gambit doesn't find out why he's here, but he does learn that Rogue and Magneto have a love child, a bouncing baby boy even.
1: She says to Magneto, you want your son growing up in Apocalypse's world? And Gambit whispers, son?
0: And Sabretooth with an s eaten grin goes What's the matter, Cajun? They forget to invite you to the baby shower
1: And now we jump over that elsewhere Where Holocaust discusses the, appearance of the disappearance of Mr. Sinister
2: Which makes us wonder if our copies are yeah. missing a few pages I don't remember him disappearing I, but, I, I okay. was just
1: doing his voice a minute ago I don't understand what he feels <laughs> uh, We wrap up back with Magneto and Rogue As they consider what the visions from The Stranger might mean Meanwhile... A crystal wave is heading toward Earth.
2: And that is X-Men Prime. Yeah. But what's next? Well, you see, we've got Uncanny X-Men, but not anymore. It's going to be Astonishing Mm. X-Men. X-Men Volume 2 is going to be Amazing X-Men. I love this one. X-Factor becomes... Factor
1: X. Yeah, they're not all that. Not all of them are very uh, creative no. folks. Uh, Here comes X- a one though. X Force becomes Gambit and the Externals. <laughs> calibre becomes <laughs> X hyphen Caliber. Calibre. Calibre, <laughs> even yeah, the uh, British version. Uh, Generation X becomes Generation Next.
2: X-Men Unlimited becomes X-Men Chronicles, and it still sucks. Uh, Wolverine becomes Weapon X, and Cable becomes X-Man.
1: And next week, we'll be taking a look at the first issues of each of these books.
2: Not X-Men Chronicles.
1: No. Maybe. Well, you know, in a way, we kind of have covered what well, is covered in those... Uh, it's true. ...a couple of issues already. You know, it's sort of a prequel stuff, but... Uh, yeah, boy, that is it, folks That's our, the first stab at the age of apocalypse And we think this is going to be five episodes, right? We think so, we as think the, so As the plan goes, and we're going to go through every single one um, mm. You know, in earlier in the episode It talked about how this was promoted as crisis You know, uh, Marvel's crisis on Infinite Earths And yeah. it isn't, because it's not resetting the universe Or establishing uh, new continuities, you know, line-wide Although, as we'll get into later, it did there, there, there were books that showed how this this uh, version affected of events affected it, yeah. the rest of the Marvel universe, but you know I'm not going to spoil it. But everything goes back in its box later on. Uh, <laughs> that just kill the next four episodes. <laughs> but anyway, it, it is it is crisis in 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 my mind in the uh, extent that it's such a big event and always such a remembered you know Lynch pit. This is definitely a bigger, more shattering event than Secret Wars Absolutely. or uh, a lot of the ones that came before it. So.
2: It wasn't, uh, it wasn't made clear initially that this was temporary. I mean, we all kind of, we were like 90% sure it was right. temporary, but, you know, there was that other 10% where it's like, I wonder what they're, what they're doing here. It, uh, we weren't sure that things were going to go back as neatly as they might.
1: Well, they did new logos, new rebranding. They had done, sure. you know, they had done a lot of work for new designs and you almost start to think like how much of this is uh is gonna stick around and it didn't you, but then don't worry it came back later <laughs>
0: and if you if you read
2: X-men prime and then pick up in a, a copy of previews magazine, it doesn't show that it goes back it's still it's still age of apocalypse stuff yeah. so you're you're looking like three or four months down the line and it's still this different universe so it's a it was exciting it was an exciting time and a little nerve-wracking
1: yeah i I, I love the idea and I, I wish you oh, know yeah. we'd we get more of these kind of you know little uh forays into. Because they can do that, you know. what I mean, this is the sure. this is the direct market, so you can actually change the title for a little while, and that people will still buy it. And uh, they should play with that more. But anyway, and like I say, all a lot of these concepts that supposedly got, you know, reversed or changed, they all came back. They all came back to a one. They all this whole series has been mined. Beyond anything it is no longer yielding Any more ores or precious metals So
2: No
1: no gems but anyway I'm thrilled To be covering it and also to get back to uh, A little bit of X-Men which is Sort of Mm. you know kind of your thing in a way Yes, it was. <laughs> but uh, if you would like to write to us uh, about the Age of Apocalypse, about Marvel Comics, the X-Men, Scott Labdell, Mark Wade, Roger Cruz, or Steve Epting, or anything we've talked about, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history.
2: Check us out on Tumblr, com.
1: Find us on Twitter at cosmictmill, and I'm at Twitter uh, at Reggie. Reggie.
2: I'm at Ace Comics.
1: See our weekly writings on DC Comics over at D- WeirdScienceDCComics.com and you can see Chris's daily writings on older DC Comics on Chris's on where he reviews a different DC comic every day of the week. You've been hanging out in that uh, Total Chaos event for a couple of weeks. <laughs> I
2: am but... revisiting Total Chaos but from the New Titans.
1: Dipping yes. in and out. You, know, you, have, you seem to be having a good time right around that 2005-ish era, I think. <laughs> Uh, that's what's going on there, but there is a different review Every day of the week, gotta check it out Got a full breakdown, pictures from it His feelings on the book And then uh, following up with some advertisements Next best thing to read in the book You can't miss it
2: Thank you, we also have the the show site WeirdComicsHistory.blogspot.com Where you can find the entire archives And uh, show notes and uh, all sorts of silly stuff
1: That's right, it's also chronologically ordered Over there, all of our yes, past episodes the only So place, yes. if you're looking to go back In any kind of reasonable way that is the place to go, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. And Chris uh, and I just want to take a minute to say here, this is our hundredth episode, and it is. I don't want to say that we, uh, you know, we never thought we'd get here. We just never really talked about it, you know. <laughs> just so we just, we just we just sort of march along, you know. We know we have not even scratched the surface of the comics and the the topics on comics that we want to cover. Maybe we've scratched the surface, but we have so much more we want to certainly uh, get into. We talk about it all the time, so. Uh, but we definitely wanna thank everyone for tuning in and supporting sure. us along this way. They've been some terrific people. And uh I'll you know, I'll let Chris say his bit here.
2: Yeah, we're always kind of cautious when we start naming people Because we don't want to leave anybody out but, right. uh, Basically, if you've listened, if you've shared, if you've reached out I mean, I, and if anybody's read the blog They know that I get kind of mushy around milestones So I'm going to try to sidestep that here
1: <laughs> but, save, <laughs> but, you know, just, save it for the 200th one, come on Yes, we'll do that <laughs> But uh, no,
2: no, thank you to everybody who's, who's listened Who's reached out, who's said hello Who's shared us, who's liked us any of that stuff. Uh we, we appreciate every single one
1: of you. Yeah, we really do. We really do uh love to get to hear from you and to see uh you know people getting interested in the same things that we do. Uh certainly. I'll just say, you know, our guiding principle for this whole podcast venture is to make the show we wanted to hear. And Definitely. we are very glad that the, some other people feel the same way. So uh thanks for tuning in and uh we will, you know, keep pumping them out until we feel like we They'll no longer do that. (laughs) Uh, But I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him?
2: Nope, just a a big, big, big thank you.
1: A big, wet, sloppy kiss and a hug. And uh, (laughs) I'm going to say until next time, folks, keep it on the treadmill apocalyptically.
2: See ya. Well, I'ma tell you a story, and I come out bluntly.
1: want an ugly child; ain't nobody would want me. I used to walk around and get upset, and upset her. Till I figured out ways to make myself look better. As I got older, my awareness expanded. I met this beautiful girl, and my wish was commanded. Didn't hang with the fellas, because they started getting shady. I'd always be my girl, and y'all can call her my lady. I loved her a lot. i up, not going to front. See, the problem that aroused me, why on earth did she want me? Couldn't figure it out. And to
2: make things worse, I was cursed. With the torment of not being the first. And the first was this fly guy, maybe very jealous. Always thinks she cheat on me and talk to other fellas. Two rounds I make a right, but any time we will fight I would kindly pick up the phone and call a girl out of spite, I shouldn't have done it I'm feeling saddened I'm, feel, I'm, feel, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling saddened
0: I'm feeling sad I'm, feel, I'm, feel, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling I want to make things
2: right, I'm so director was admiring I tried to stop my love, but no, my love was not retiring To catch her in a lie was never impossible,
1: it's tricky